You're listening to KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and not of KKSM, Palomar College, its staff, the board of directors, or station management. You're listening to KKSM Palomar College Radio. I have two words for you, predator drones. You will never see it coming. I think I'm joking. Drones are being used in drone strikes, and I support that entirely and feel the president was right. There's a reason why we shouldn't be using drones. It's because we don't just take out the target. We take out a lot of innocent civilians in these countries where these drones attack. This is basically blowing up in our faces. We've seen the blowback all across the Middle East. What if our foreign policy of the past century is deeply flawed and has not served our national security interests? Free I hate categories. Categories are okay if you're going to grocery store. But for me, the categories screwed a lot of people up. Make everything metal. Blacker than the black is black. Times infinity. Thought Radio, San Diego's source for heavy metal and other genres that are ignored by mainstream radio. San Diego's only libertarian talk show in a conservative-dominated market. More hard-hitting journalism than even the professionals themselves. Free Thought Radio, free speech, free expression, and free snow call. Only on KKSM Oceanside, AM 1320. The Radio Revolution. Welcome to Free Thought Radio, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle, here Mondays, 6 to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You could catch the main website at freethoughtmedia.org. It's brand new. Um, so for those, uh, I, I don't know if any of you have saw this new Discovery Channel show, but um, they have a great new show called Weed Country which shows the human side of cannabis growers in the Emerald Triangle of Northern California. And they're not co- uh, covering the uber-large-scale cartel gro- growers, but the, you know, the small to medium to medium-large growers who are independent, not cartel, and most often distribute for medical purposes. And, um, of course, they also portray, they show the police officers, you know, just go- showing again, you know, those in the drug interdiction forces, that they aren't just there for the check. They're zealous against this plant, and they really think that the downfall of America is not going to be bankruptcy or uh, World War III. It's going to be drugs. Yes, that is their philosophy. Um, so they show you know the harsh police state, and, you know the big guns that they get, you know all the all the money it costs to, of taxpayer and monetary inflation. The show also delves into the medicinal value of the plant, where a Stanford University professor uh, is seeking help from a grower who is very astute in botany uh, for her less than 10-year-old son who has 10 seizures a day uh, from epilepsy and has literally been left to dry by the medical system after many dangerous surgeries and ineffective poisonous pharmaceutical meds. Now, the, the compound of cannabis CBD is more effective for um, epilepsy than THC, and in fact, CBD counteracts THC. And... Uh, uh, with someone like the guy that she she was talking to, he was very good on botany. He could, by breeding, uh, create a strain of cannabis that was, for the most part, CBD to really save this kid's life. Uh, most of the drugs he were taking was ineffective, and then he had to sign a waiver saying, you know, it might ruin his liver, he might die. Um, 
So that, that's kind of why we brings the light to this plant. Um, the show properly educates people on CBD and THC, reaffirming what I've been saying for a while now on the show. I had Rick Simpson on last year um, in the summer, in the fall. Um, go to his website, phoenixtears.ca, watch his documentary, Run From The Cure. And only when it's on TV that people, you know, don't think I'm crazy anymore um, about cannabis curing cancer or, or helping out with epilepsy. Um, they also delve into the industrial uses of the cannabis hemp plant. And that is what brings me to my guest for tonight, because he's also going to tell you some interesting facts about the hemp as, as a food uh, for you cooking connoisseurs. So, so without further ado... Joining me now is Brad. He's the CHO of Hippie Butter. That is the chief hemp officer. Uh, they make uh, tons of hemp seed products. And uh, for those listening, uh, this is pre-taped, but right now I'm eating uh, breakfast. I'm eating uh, hemp seed waffles, uh, not made by Hippie Butter, but I am using uh, some of the Hippie Butter uh, cacao hemp seed butter, which is basically um, Nutella chock full of hemp seeds. And uh, unlike Nutella, it's not GMO. It's... Uh, Soy-free, gluten-free, um, has no cholesterol, and it is amazing. So, Brad, welcome to the show. It's great to meet you. Sorry about that. My <laughs> so, dog was walking around behind me and <laughs> distracted me for a second. How you doing, Alex? Pretty good. So, uh, you you've been a you've been a chef uh, as your background and also a, a sound engineer. Give give us a history about yourself, how you discovered the benefits of hemp seeds. And also how that led you to, to start Hippie Butter and, and what Hippie Butter is all about. Yeah. Well, in my younger years, I got a culinary arts degree and I was a chef. Um, one of my sous chefs was a singer in a band. And I started mixing sound for his band. Uh, jumped in an inner tube, rode down the river. And next thing you know, I'm working with all the biggest and the best uh, music artists out there. I was on tour with uh, Michael Blue Blay. Nice. And we were doing a Canada tour, and while I was over there, I found hemp seeds in all the stores. And, you know, it was funny. It was neat to try. And after eating them, I noticed I wasn't as tired throughout the day, and I stopped getting colds that I always get. Um, and I would even lose weight whenever I was in Canada eating hemp seeds. My belt buckle would go down a loop, and I was like, wow, this stuff is great. But whenever I was here in the United States, I could never find it or I had to order it from Canada. And one thing led to the next. I started buying it in cases and giving it to friends and selling it to friends. And it grew into hippie butter. So made our own label, got our own line of food, and have even invented some of our own hemp seed foods where you can't find it other places like hemp seed coffee and the organic cacao hemp seed butter. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we are right now. We're actually getting working on a hemp protein bar that's going to be a um, meal replacement. It's just a little protein bar. Looks like a brownie, actually. Tastes like a brownie, but they're 100% organic and really good for you. Fill you up so you don't munch all day long and give you lots of energy. And so that's how we created Hippie Butter. It was just uh, the love of hemp seeds and finding how well they worked for me and just not having a place to get them. And mm -hmm. uh, what's the what's like the mission of Hippie Butter, uh, uh, whether as hemp seeds or as a as a philosophy of the company as a whole? Well, we want everybody to enjoy hemp seed and hemp seed products because at one time in the history of man, that's a, probably all they ate. Uh, as you know, in both Australia and China, there was times of famine, and um, 
they would eat the hemp seed for protein and the leaves for roughage, and there was no other food for them to eat. Uh, so it's a good food that everybody should have in their diet. Plus, it's high in omega-3, omega-6, omega-9. It has the perfect ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, which is what your brain is made of. So if you have the right amount of the omega essential fatty acids, you're actually a happier person, healthier, and your mind works a lot better. Um, and you actually notice it. You're actually in a better mood if you add one to, t one to three tablespoons of hemp seed products to your uh, daily diet. So you don't even have to add that much, just a little bit. And it tastes great. So it's not you know, like trying to chop down some chalky-tasting, nasty protein powder. It actually tastes good. Definitely, and it's 100% natural too. It's not. It's not like produced in a lab like some whey proteins are. Correct, and it's GMO-free, herbicide-free, pesticide-free. They don't use any of that. Um, they don't even have to give it high doses of uh, fertilizer to grow. It, it does that all on its own because of it has a, such a deep tap root. So hemp, hemp is ecologically sustainable in that it does not sap the life out of soil it grows on, and it is not known uh, where it is farmed, like especially in Canada. It is not known to be genetically uh, modified by farmers or people that grow it. Um, and uh, Canada is where U.S. imports hemp from the most. Could hemp agriculture lead by example for agriculture in general to stop genetically modifying crops? Oh, definitely. Um, and the great thing about hemp is it's a great rotation crop, so you can grow it in between other crops, and it helps add nitrogen into the soil. And again, because of the deep tap root, it helps break up the soil for your next rotation of whatever you're going to grow, whether it, it's uh, vegetables or corn or fruits or trees or whatever you want to go in that area. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm ecstatic to that industrial hemp is now legal in two states uh, yet to be implemented but it is on the on the books they passed i-502 in washington and amendment 64 um do you expect to be getting some of your raw materials from american farmers and uh, what do you think of u.s policy against hemp farming uh we would love to get our hemp seeds from the united states because it would just cut down on cost and it would be a lot easier for a lot of people to try hemp. Our products are a little bit expensive, but it's because of the import costs from Canada. We actually we make less of a percentage than what your grocery store makes on everything they sell, yet people still can't really, some people can't afford some of our products. And we don't do that to be mean or to get rich. It's just how much it costs to import all the hemp seeds. If it was grown in America, one, the money would stay in America, and two, it would bring the cost down for everybody. Of course. So uh, you think that uh, hemp legalization in the U.S. lowers the price of hemp foods, uh, given that supply was completely suppressed by the government, but now it will get to exist naturally in the market? Oh, yeah. I mean, eventually, like in Canada, you can buy um, bulk hemp seeds from Costco and Sam's, the, you know, the big box stores, where you can't really do that here in the United States. Um, in Canada, everybody knows about hemp seeds and how they are added onto salads and added into breakfast cereals and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, once 
people see it growing on the side of the roads are going to go to their supermarkets and try to order some. Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, I've noticed this, uh, but the only places that sell hemp foods are like a, a Whole Foods. If you go to a, if you go to another grocery store that sells the same like the Nature's Path brand of uh, cereals, they don't sell the hemp uh, seed granola. Do you think it's because they want to be politically correct that? Um, that they don't want to have anything pertaining to cannabis in their in their supermarkets. Oh yeah, a lot of corporations have uh, anti-hemp rules. Um, like Chase Bank, we when we were trying to get a merchant account and start Hippie Butter a few years ago, Chase Bank took all our money to set up us to take credit cards, and then after getting all set up, taking all our money, they sent us a letter saying we don't support hemp companies and dropped us next day. So. There's lots of companies out there like that um, that just their policy because they think it's something scary and bad, which is from education. We have to teach them. That's absolutely absurd. I, I did not know it was that, you know, deep-rooted. Wow. Oh, yeah, it cost us quite a – Chase Bank cost us quite a bit of money just because of that little rule they had. And they, of course, don't tell you until after they take your money. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, uh, talk about the different food and cosmetic products that Hippie Butter has to offer, in, in in the context of showing the variety of the uses of hemp. Well, we have snacks that you can eat right out of the bag: hauled hemp seeds and toasted hemp seeds. The hauled hemp seeds are without the shells. A lot of people call them hemp hearts. Uh, the toasted hemp seeds are toasted just a little bit, and then they put some sea salt on them. Which, if you have any type of thyroid problem. The toasted hemp seeds are great for you. Then we have hemp seed flour, which you can bake like regular flour. It's gluten-free and makes the fluffiest cakes and breakfast foods and breads that you can imagine. We have hemp seed oil that works just like uh, regular oil. You can use it like olive oil and dip your bread in. We cook garlic and put hemp seed oil on top of the garlic when we roast it instead of using uh, olive oil. And it comes out tons better for you. Uh, not only tasting, but it's healthier for you. We have protein powder, which is, a, you know, just what it says, protein powder. Uh, we're starting to carry uh, raw hemp seed butter and the cacao hemp seed butter. Those have been our two biggest sellers here lately. Uh, you use them like peanut butter or an almond butter. You can put them in smoothies, slap it on vegetables, put it with fruits. I have, them, I have it on my waffles right now. Good. <laughs> It goes great on shortbread cookies, the cacao uh, butter does. So if you have someone really picky who you're trying to get some extra protein in and some extra nutrients and omega fatty acids, if you take shortbread cookies with a little bit of that cacao butter, the pickiest eater in the world will eat it every time. Um, Our skincare products are, we have a hand lotion, a massage oil, a moisturizing cream, and a soap, shampoo, and conditioners coming soon. Uh, We're just still working out that whole deal. And like I was saying earlier, we have a meal replacement protein bar coming out probably in two months, uh, which we're really excited about. That's going to be a great way for people to get all the nutrients they need in the daytime and not have to munch on stuff all day long. Awesome. For those just joining, I'm currently chatting with Brad. He's the CHO, Chief Hemp Officer of Hippie Butter Hemp Seed Products. Uh, uh, they make food and uh, and other cosmetic items made out of uh, organic, not genetically modified hemp seeds. 
Uh, so, Brad, there there are other uses for hemp that hippie butter does not offer, such as hempcrete for housing and also the possibilities of hemp as a biofuel. Uh, do you know much about those types of uses and the promises that they offer? Oh, man, hemp, as you know, Randolph, the man who created the diesel engine, wanted it to run on hemp oil. Uh, he was the one who made, it, made the engine for Ford when they made their first car. So, and Ford wanted to use hemp in the fiberglass and the plastic around the car. Um, so hemp can be used, as you notice, for anything. Anything that you can pull out of oil from the ground or trees can be made using the hemp plant, which is great. You can build a whole entire house, and except for the marble countertops, you have a total hemp house. Uh, even the PVC pipe that runs through the house could be made with hemp if you wanted to. Uh, there's hemp clothing, which lasts twice as long, keeps you twice as dry and twice as warm. Or in the summertime, the air flows through it so well it cools you down. And as you know, you were saying hempcrete. Hempcrete is the only concrete that always gets harder. It never softens up. So there's bridges in France that were made with hempcrete that are still getting stronger to this day. Wow. Yeah, so there's lots of uses for hemp, uh, you, you know. As they say, there's 50,000 uses for it, from dynamites to building houses. We could even build roads with hempcrete if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, uh, what about the, uh, the uh, uh, benefits of, of uh, the hemp flower uh, from the cannabis plant? Uh, what, what are the benefits of those, and especially versus alcohol use, which is legal in our society, uh, but uh, uh, hemp use is, is uh, frowned upon in our society? That sort of would be like making bread or anything made with corn legal because you can make whiskey out of it. That's how the hemp flour is. Um, hemp flour is very nutritious, high in omega-6 and 3. It has 36% protein and a good amount of fiber. Um, it even helps chill. If you have a child who uh, is getting in trouble in school, is hyperactive, just make bread out of hemp seed flour and hemp seed oil. Then throughout the week, put your peanut butter on it or ham sandwich or whatever you want to feed your kid during his time. And they'll actually, grades will improve and they'll stop getting in trouble. Uh, So that's how good the hemp seed is for our bodies. I'm actually talking about uh, the, uh, the, 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 the flower of the hemp plant uh, uh, where uh, the medicinal aspects come from. There's lots of good uses for that. Um, too bad we don't aren't allowed to study it so that we can have documented reports, you know, to, to prove our our side of the story. It really doesn't make sense why something that has never killed anybody is illegal in our sense. It's I don't know. It just, it's like beating a dead horse talking about it. Everybody it's not right. What what did you make of I-502 and Amendment 64? Uh, uh, did you think it, it would have uh, failed, or, or, or were you op- optimistic throughout the whole time? Oh, I was optimistic. I actually thought the Oregon one was going to pass before the, the Colorado or Washington one did, and the Oregon one failed. So that, that sort of surprised me. Same with California failing a couple of years ago. That surprised us. Big money talks. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And speaking of big money, uh, uh, crony capitalism bur- burdens business in this country. Uh, companies or 
industry boards collude with government to pass laws and regulations that protect and further monopolize their established businesses while making it hard for entrepreneurs to enter the particular industries that they are uh, wanting to enter. For example, Monsanto does this by preventing free research and labeling of GMO foods, and they also use their seed patents to, ra- to harass small farmers. So they don't, they don't allow free labeling, free labeling of GMO foods, and at the same time they also, you know, severely defeated uh, uh, Prop 37, which would have uh, required them to label it. So they don't, they don't allow the free labeling or the uh, or the uh, mandated labeling. Um, do you find uh, the business landscape to be stacked against people like yourself? Oh, definitely. That's the whole you know side of America is hold the little guy down and make the big guy strong. It seems like um, you you hit the nail right on the head when when you talked all about that. And I even think the main reason hemp is still made is illegal is because to start, like if you and I wanted to start a big oil company, it would cost us billions of dollars in pipeline and trucks and tanks and drilling and all that kind of stuff, where if hemp was made legal, then the two of us with just a few acres of land could start growing hemp and start our own oil company if we wanted to for very little money. Exactly. And so I, you know, I think the whole idea of keeping him illegal is to keep the little guy down so that the billionaires stay billionaires instead of having a hundred thousand millionaires. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have said, or said it better myself. Uh, um, what do you predict the future of hemp is? It's going to just keep growing. It, it keeps going in every country. So it's going to grow here. People are, are getting smarter by the day. The internet's growing as you know, and uh, they're even talking about it on CNN. Now, as you saw with Tommy Chong and his cancer, he started fighting it with hemp or hemp oil, and they put that on CNN. So people are learning. Yeah, actually, I actually had a Rick Simpson on the program uh, earlier uh, last year, and you know that was before that was kind of like the CNN talked about Tommy Chong, but then Tommy, uh, I don't think he did the dosage right or anything like that. But then they didn't. Everybody, you know, once I had Rick on the show, people probably thought I was crazy. But then CNN had another person on their show, uh, uh, like a girl that was less than 10 years old with leukemia using, uh, I think, solely cannabis oil and and uh, recovering, going into remission because of it. Um, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you make of the media slowly picking up on it? But it's not like they don't have the AMA approving of it. So... Because of that, it's kind of just like people kind of laugh it off. What's the tragedy re- resulting from the giggle factor? Oh, it's incredibly sad. There, I have friends right now that have cancer that when I talk about hemp oil, they giggle at me. And, you know, it's really sad because they could be getting better instead of dying. Um, but then again, who knows what the real truth is? We hope it's true, but there are no real studies going on. It's all he said, she said. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, I hope it's true, and it seems like it's true, and it looks like it's true, but we still have to wait to find out if it's true. And, and it's, 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 like, uh, it's like the same thing with, with Monsanto suppressing GMO research and labeling. Like, uh, the DEA uh, controls the research on cannabis, so they issue uh, grants for research, so it's very limited. But the research, like uh, I live in San, uh, this is a, we're in a San Diego show. UCSD did studies showing that 
uh, cannabinoids reduce uh, spasms with multiple sclerosis. So you would figure since the, the hemp oil is just basically a super concentrated, uh, you know, extract of the cannabis plant that just, you know, a high, high amount of THC, pure THC, unburnt, uh, plus the other cannabinoids would, would have that effect, you know, you know, mul- multiple t- times of whatever they would dose lab rats with. It's certainly, uh, ho- hopefully, if, if the research does come along that, uh, that this is uh, brought to light and, and so we could start using it on a regular basis. Oh, I agree with you 100%. So uh, hippie butter just got a USDA organic approved, and and part of that means that uh, uh, reassuring uh, your non-GMO plank. Uh, what are some uh, what are some details about that, and also uh, uh, a few more details about any future products that our listeners can look forward to? Uh, well, you just said it in a nutshell. We finally got not all our food products, but ninety percent of our food products are now USDA approved which just means we can say that they're organic. They were organic before. It's just you're not allowed to say that they're organic until you get their approval. Um, it's just sort of funny. It took a really long time. Uh, there aren't, really aren't that many hemp companies that are USDA approved, so they, they ran us through the ringer, not, not sure of, of what to do with us or how to deal with us, but we finally worked it, worked it out with them. Um, and as we grow and, and get things going, we'll get our our other products all usda approved but we do all our products are organic and we use all non-gmo seeds ever all our products are kosher that kind of good stuff vegan friendly awesome well i've been talking with brad he's a cho chief hemp officer of hippie butter hemp seed products um where, where can uh, people find hippie butter online you can find us at hippiebutter.com. You can find us on Facebook under Hippie Butter Hemp Seeds. Twitter, we're Hippie Butter. On YouTube, we're Hippie Butter. Pinterest, we're Hippie Butter. So we're all over the place, and we have a good time uh, with social media. We hope everybody will come and follow us on one platform or another and become our friends. Awesome. Well, Brad, thank you very much for joining the program and educating our listeners about the value of hemp seeds. Well, thank you for having us on. We appreciate it. We love your show. No problem. Thank you. And that was Brad, the CHO, Chief Hemp Officer of Hippie Butter Hemp Seed Food Products. And um, I'm so glad that two states have legalized it so that, it, that you know, we could start making these raw materials. You know, if you look at the Keystone Pipeline, instead of having that, which is just, you know, it seems like a you know a big uh, oil monopoly thing, especially when you know like like we went over in the interview. You know, it takes a billion dollars worth of capital to start an oil company, whereas it just takes a few seeds and an acres of land to start a hemp company. Why not instead of the Keystone Pipeline, how about an entire you know hemp corridor of hemp fields? You could take all the. You, it takes an, about eight months uh, to grow a hemp house. How about growing your own oil over and over again? renewable but unfortunately due to the illegality we can't do that which brings me to this next song uh um, before we go to the break uh this one is called wild and free by ziggy marley and it's definitely a, a good uh prophecy song for the future there's a saying that if you don't like hemp you're not gonna like the future 
And I must say that hemp will be growing wild and free in the future. KKSM, the radio revolution. Be right back. A fire burns for freedom. A fire burns for freedom. A fire burns for freedom. The smell of dissent is I. I'm standing for the truth. Too long it's been denied. Welcome back to Free Thought Radio. That last song you heard was Wild and Free by Ziggy Marley, uh, pertaining to my last guest, Brad, from Hippie Butter Hemp Seed Food Products. Great food, lots of protein, and uh, lots of omega-3 fatty acids. Again, you know, a great way, you know, for those survivalists out there, just grow a hemp plant and you could eat the seeds um, and the leaves. And, uh, you know, you won't have to rely on the corporate food stores whose shelves will go bare during a monetary collapse. But it is 6.30. That means it's time for your KKSM News Brief. So I'm here at the Bradley Manning Visual. We're marching down Hill, uh, University Avenue. And we're being currently herded like sheep by the police. They want us to stay off the streets and on the sidewalk. I was filming the police officer earlier. You'd be able to see this on YouTube. But I asked him for his badge number, and I also asked him if he thought 1984 was an instruction manual. Hopefully I have enough uh, room left on my camera's chip 
to be able to, be able to film what these police do further in the night. Hopefully they don't really do anything to us. Hopefully the bigger guns don't come out. I've seen what happened to Occupy. This doesn't seem like America to me. Where Bradley Manning is in jail, he's the criminal. Joining me now is Gabe Conaway. He's from Canvas for a Cause, a great LGBT uh, rights organization, and, and they also uh, do a lot of work for a lot of other great issues as well, uh, based out of Hillcrest in San Diego, California. Gabe, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Alex. We were at the uh, the vigil to uh, mark the 1,000 days without due process uh, for Private First Class Bradley Manning, the alleged uh, WikiLeaks uh, document um, source. Um, give us a bit. Give us a bit of background on Bradley Manning for uh, those of our listeners who who don't know who he is or, or what his circumstances are. Well, uh, Private Manning is uh, is the alleged WikiLeaks whistleblower. Um, it is alleged that um, they uh, leaked um, millions of documents, such as um, a video that um, shows actually three violations of the Geneva Conventions and war crimes uh, committed in Iraq, um, the, um, the trail of Iraq and Afghan war logs, the Guantanamo files, um, a young army private who um, saw a lot of terrible things um, that our government was doing, and to no longer sit quiet. Um, intelligence analysts um, had access to these things, um, released them, and was unfortunately um, reached out to a, a, um, an LGBT um, hacker um, for, for support, um, both professionally and, uh, and emotionally, and that hacker unfortunately turned, turned him in. Um, yeah, it's been over a thousand days now. A lot of that time was under new circumstances of solitary confinement, sensory, and um, um, deprivation, forced nudity, a lot of Guantanamo-style things. Um, it's, a, it's, 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 it's widely believed that these things were done um, in order to give them a break and give information about um, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and and also to you know intimidate other people from not doing the same. And, and before we talk oh, about... Absolutely. Before we talk about the protests, which will be later, I, I definitely want to get through some kind of uh, uh, rudimentary things about this situation. So, uh, first of all, I mean, I, I, it is a part of military code to, re- to report on war crimes, and it, it also goes into a soldier's duty to, to uphold the Constitution from enemies foreign and domestic, and, and that their oath is to the Constitution, the people, and their rights, not a politician, not a political party, nor the dirt they leave across the world or the skeletons they accrue in their closets. Is there any crime here for what he's alleged to be done? Or have they, you know, they've just made an example out of, of someone they really want to just shut up? I mean, the, the chat logs um, pretty much say it all. And it's unfortunate because um, Manning really believed that, that they were um, talking to somebody who um, was confidential. I mean, um, Adrian Lama makes it clear in the, in the logs that um, and not only as a journalist, but also some kind of spiritual counselor, that um, there was complete um, confidentiality. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's clear in the conversation that was never supposed to be released that Manning w- was releasing these crimes because they were, they were just dead crimes. It talks about how, how they had gone to their superiors um, before um, with, with issues of wrongdoing and completely even turned away. 
So um, Manning felt that they had no other um, option but to leak this um, um, organization WikiLeaks. And yeah, I mean, everything points to that from, you know, no acknowledgement. I mean, to this day, you know, if, if the military had said, you know, yeah, you're in trouble, but we're going to look into these allegations and, and, and these crimes, but this person is being persecuted, but yet none of these crimes were revealed are being, um, are being acted upon. So it's obviously um, a, an attempt by a government to silence whistleblowers and basically legalize um, totalitarian wrongdoing across the planet. Mm -hmm. Exactly. For those uh, wondering where uh, to find some more info on on this, I uh, there are a lot of in, you know no mainstream journalists were out there. Um, folks like myself with a camera. Uh, many people uh, had cameras, and and in my view, cameras are the best. Uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant, which is why I would imagine um, there were no major police abuses because it would have all gone across live stream. Um, uh, although I did see some of those cars get a little too close to people, um, but I do. I'm, I'm going to post the video soon. If you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel, go ahead and go over to YouTube.com/slash/FreeThoughtRadioVids. That's V-I-D-S. FreeThoughtRadioVids. Also got some photos on the Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash/FreeThoughtRadio. Uh, the full interview uh, regarding all this will be airing on April 1st, so be sure to tune in then. Um, until then, uh, a bit of a themed s song here. Uh, this one is called Ghosts of War by Slayer. And, um, well, I, th I think it speaks for itself. Uh, we'll be right back after this. KKSM, The Radio Revolution.
Ghost of War by Slayer, and I got some great news for you all. I know you're you're uh, you most of uh, those that listen to the show know that I play Death a lot. Chuck Schuldiner is one of my personal heroes, one of my favorite guitarists. Um, for those of you that missed the Death to All tour, got some uh, great news just came out today. I believe um, new Death to All dates for 2013. So be very very stoked. It's going to be. Um, um, going from uh, covering the first four albums, Scream, Bloody Gore, Leprosy, Spiritual Healing, and Human, and um, it will have the uh, it will have the Human lineup for for Death with which with uh, guitarist Paul Masvidal, bassist Steve DiGiorgio, and drummer Sean Reiner, and, and they're and they are going to be uh, performing together. Not sure who the uh, front man uh, is going to be. Um, but that's going to be released soon. But the tour dates are, are here and they're now. Uh, so I'm going to read them off for you. Um, and and um, hopefully uh, you all can get out to it if you missed it last time. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna try to go as well if the tickets don't get sold out in a, in a zippy. And you know they will because they probably did last time. And especially now. Uh, now people want like a bigger demand for it. And uh, of course, it is. It is again for the Sweet Relief uh, charity uh, for musicians without health care. So the dates are as follows: April thirteenth, West Hollywood, California, House of Blues. April fifteenth, Denver, Colorado, the Gothic Theater. April eighteenth, Detroit, Michigan, St. Andrews Hall. April nineteenth, Cleveland, Ohio, House of Blues. Four twenty, Cincinnati, Ohio, Bar- Bogarts. Uh, April twenty first. Chicago, Illinois, House of Blues. April 23rd, Montreal, Quebec, for you Canadians out there, at uh, Club Soda. April 24th, New York, New York, at Irving Plaza. April 25th, Philadelphia, PA, Pennsylvania, sorry. Uh, Theater for the Living Arts. April 26th, Silver Spring, Maryland, at the Fillmore. Uh, April 27th, Worcester, Massachusetts, at the Palladium. April 28th, Toronto, Ontario at the Phoenix Concert Theater. And 429, Mexico City, Mexico at Circo Volador. And again, those are the tour dates for the Death to All Tour. Paying tribute to the Lake Chuck Schuldiner, frontman of Death. And of course, uh, going to benefit the Sweet Relief Musicians Charity for those without health care. Uh, mus- musicians, that is. So um, I'm very, very excited for that. But I want to get into uh, something that happened over the over the uh, last few days, um, so it was revealed that there is a a shooter in the town that I live in, which is Encinitas, California. Um, it was a guy, car thief, pretty much. Um, he was confronted by officers when he shot them with a, with a with a regular shotgun, and then ran off and quartered himself, I believe, in his mom's house. 
And the response to this was just as um, horrifying as I believe the uh, Chris Dorner response was. And, it, you know, it is not to justify any of those people, but, um, you know, seeing our streets militarized uh, with paramilitary equipment in the hands of police, police militarization, um, one day, or today it's going to be used for criminals, tomorrow it's going to be used for you and me, thanks to these laws with the National Defense Authorization Act, the Patriot Act, um, the ability to assassinate American citizens without charge or trial, the ability to detain American citizens without charge or trial. You know, it's very easy to enforce those things when you have really, really large guns. And I saw uh, the police vehicle they had looked exactly like the ones they had in Baghdad. The only difference it was painted black and said the word police on it. It had a machine gun turret at the top for a common street thug. You know, even no, no matter, you know, uh, how, you know, bat, you know, he shot officers, but with a, with a common shotgun, uh, is it any reason to, you know, throw our streets into a kind of a martial law type of state for one guy that locked himself in his mom's house, you know, putting a, a force evacuating people. Um, it just seems like kind of a, a show of, um, of how far they're down 1984 uh, we can go. Um, and, you know, going back a few years ago when we were, uh, when we were evacuated for a fire, first of all, mandatory evacuation is illegal. But there was military blocking, you know, the main road that goes to where I live. Military for a fire. I mean, imagine what's going to happen in, in any other type of uh, situation, an emergency that, that um, our government could declare. And they could start going after these supposed domestic terrorists, um, which domestic terrorists is so broad, so vague. It's mostly to uh, include people with politi uh, peaceful political views that oppose, um, really, you know, that oppose the employment of the people that are enforcing these laws, meaning the DHS, TSA, um, you know, all these new agencies that only came up about in the last 10 years, thanks to President George Bush. Um, you know, that's why Ron Paul was harassed by the TSA, you know, leaving the Republican National Convention. It was at a private airport where TSA doesn't go. They especially came because they thought he was the threat to Mitt Romney's life. You know, and, and they put people who that support Ron Paul on these on these uh, supposed domestic terrorist watch lists. Um, you know, these types of equipment in our police hands uh, really spell danger for our civil liberties, uh, for our safety, uh, for our economy, because of all the money it takes to fund uh, these fancy new equipments. It takes away power from our city councils because. The federal government holds so much power in these purse strings that when they dangle it in front of these city councils or these municipalities or police departments, they can't resist and they're going to go along with the programs that have to go along with that. And uh, that includes, you know, Department of Homeland Security fusion centers. Uh, I saw this uh, 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 video issued by the Department of Homeland Security where it basically encourages you to, if you see something, say something. It sounds pretty nice. Um, you look at their their imagery in that video. It has this guy kind of, um, you know, kind of, I don't know if you can see the webcam, kind of looks like me. I'll put my hood on. Kind of has his hood on. He's taking some notes. He has a he has a smartphone. He's he, It's in a train station. He's, you know, taking video of this train. Yeah, I don't see how this is terrorist activity either. But roll with me here. <laughs> They're showing this lady. She's all heroic. You know, she's kind of looking at him 
kind of peers over uh, his shoulder to see him taking notes or whatever. It has a time like 3.30 a.m. or whatever. And, you know, she slowly walks away and then starts calling 911. It basically encourages you to, you know, kind of be all paranoid, inspiring your neighbor over whims, over arbitrary things, over you just being paranoid and watching too much TV and, and thinking your neighbor's up to something. And, the, you know, the way this guy that was in that train station in that one scene, and this, there's multiple kind of uh, scenarios that they go through to say, you know, you should report on somebody. They, <laughs> the guy kind of looks like me, you know. I don't have a beard right now, but, you know, he has a goatee. He has a hood on like I'm wearing right here in the webcam. Um, you know, he kind of, are they trying to say that everybody who looks rock and roll, anybody who looks a little bit scraggly is now a domestic terrorist? You know, I, I, I look pretty rock and roll. You know, I, uh, independent journalists go around with smartphones and filming things and taking notes. Um, you know, independent journalists don't go in suit and ties. They look scraggly and wear beards. You know, uh, it, it really uh, it really is ju just trying to uh, rile up fears in, in the eyes of people that are really scared of terrorism and, 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 and really have fall victim to this fear-mongering um, to try to, you know, have people call or report on people for things that are completely stupid that because of people's fear factor, they think it is it's terrorist activity and they feel it's their good patriotic duty to call up the Department of Homeland Security or their, um, or the, or 911. It's, it's extremely, uh, just in, insane. You know, the, the amount of distrust we're trying to say, don't trust your neighbor. Um, you know, don't think with facts. Think with fear. Use your emotions, not your logic. Um, and, and the way this ties back into militarized police, if they have all these big guns and they're working with local fusion centers, how are they going to respond to the next Occupy movement, given that the FBI tried to infiltrate the Occupy movement, spy on the Occupy movement, and even considered assassinating certain members of the Occupy movement? And, and uh, you know, look at all the videos, you know, uh, of police brutality. Uh, uh, against peaceful people. Yes, there are a few uh, wrongdoers, uh, idiots who try to, you know, uh, you know, want to g jump on a bandwagon, be trendy, and, and piss on uh, uh, businesses' walls or or, de or you know, desecrate them. But a lot of people were peaceful. Most were, and uh, uh, of course, you know, cops don't like loudness. Uh, you know, they work more for corporate law than they do for the Constitution. Uh, and the people's rights, uh, especially when it comes to free assembly and all that. So I think it's very scary that we have uh, milit paramilitarized police forces in, in our in our country. Um, it's it's just you know you know how much farther down 1984 we have to go uh, before you know we start <laughs> uh, wanting to change things in a peaceful manner because um, it only stops. Uh, when they don't think they can get elected. Um, it only stops when, you know, they realize that indefinite detention is not going to work because nobody's going to want to be indefinitely detained. But it is uh, around uh, 6.53 here. Time for the KKSM News Brief. So earlier in the episode, I played the uh, audio from the Bradley Manning a uh, vigil here in San Diego was not covered by the mainstream media, unfortunately. Um, it would bring light to certain war crimes that they don't want to have on the people knowing about. 
you know, having him on TV would mean go- plenty of Googling of Bradley Manning, just like when Gary Johnson was on that presidential debate. He was the most Googled person on earth. Uh, you know, controlling controlling the uh, the gatekeeper role there. Um, and I already talked about local news, the Lucadia shooter, and the dangers of militarized police. Um, so I want to move on to state news here. Bell, uh, California City Council members uh, go to court. So the former city council members went to court uh, after taking salaries of over $800,000 off your tax dollars. And they are in the midst of de- deliberations with the jury. In national news, the Aaron Swartz files reveal FBI surveillance on him. Now, I don't know if you know, many of you know, but Martin Luther King was also surveilled by the FBI, not for his protection, no. Like they surveilled, just like how they surveilled Aaron Swartz, because they perceived him as a threat, especially as a peace activist. But with Aaron Swartz, new information on him revealed the FBI was surveilling him, trying to obtain his driver's license info, vehicle info, his location, and more. Although officers were not told to approach him in person uh, due to, you know, whatever, it's an ongoing case, um, even creepier. Uh, you know, there's people watching you without you knowing it. Uh, these actions were likely to be a result of his open information manifesto, which hadn't been released to the public until last week, as well as his many FOIA uh, Freedom of Information Act requests um, into the treatment of private first class Bradley Manning, as well as Aaron's own possible involvement with WikiLeaks. Carmen Ortiz uh, the embattled U.S. attorney who charged the late activist Aaron Swartz with multiple felonies responded to critics by saying complaints about any prosecu- uh, prosecutorial overzealousness are inaccurate and unfair. You know what's inaccurate and unfair? A dead human being, Prosecutor Ortiz, how do you sleep at night? FAA uh, is keeping quiet on domestic drones. The LA Times reported that the FAA issued 1,428 permits to domestic drone operators since 2007, far more than the FAA officially admits to. Um, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests are repeatedly dodged by the FAA uh, to probe the real number of drones in our skies, which are above us right now. Welcome to 1984. Uh, oh, and speaking of 1984, Obama passes uh, the CISPA bill by executive order. Uh, CISPA, uh, I'm not sure of the acronym, unfortunately, sorry. Uh, with Aaron Swartz called the Patriot Act for the Internet. Uh, a similar, uh, something similar to the CISPA bill was put into law through executive order by President Obama over fear of supposed cyber terrorism. Now this new law allows for more open information sharing between IP providers and law enforcement. They can now gather information on your social media activities a lot easier, if not already. Uh, if you looked at you know, the Department of Homeland Security and FBI's uh, logs for certain keywords they look in social media, which includes words like cloud or uh, other really you know, general terms that you could come up on a watch list because of it. Huh. But now they can, uh, they can do things like monitor if you have downloaded copyright information a copyrighted inf- or files or not, or, or copyrighted anything. I mean, you know, you could uh, 
you could take, you know, a Kiss song and then throw a bunch of, of uh, you know, Apple um, loops at the beginning and then put, put that MP3 out and send it to a friend. Even though it's not the original master, you could put it at, you know, a low bit rate, you know, have a bunch of different Apple loops at the beginning and still be copyrighted, even though it's not the original MP3 from iTunes or the CD uh, original rip. But if you get caught, you get a special email uh, sent to you. I don't know how they're going to get your email, but they're going to send you, uh, it's through this new copyright alert system, which is basically big brother for the internet. If you download a suspected copyrighted file, a special video message is sent to you to educate you on the ills of privacy. And if after five or six of these brainwashing attempts, you don't change your evil ways, your internet will be slowed down. Or, you know, the extreme cases, they have this similar law in France. They actually shut down your internet. The internet was designed to be the 1776 of the real world's 1984. But unfortunately, Obama just brought 1984 to the internet. Down with E, big brother. And uh, like I predicted, Obama's drug czar said, we will crack down on legal marijuana and hemp. Still interfering with legal medical cannabis to this day with the sentencing of Aaron Sandusky, continued crackdowns on the few dispensaries that still exist. Uh, the Obama administration has finally admitted to what I have been predicting for over a year now, that they will crack down on cannabis hemp farmers and distributor, distributors in Colorado and Washington. Additionally, Glenn Beck attempts to bring the blaze to cable TV. Beck claims his news channel is libertarian-leaning, slams uh, uh, news channels like Al Jazeera, and that viewers ought to improve their values with Beck's programming. Now, for those uh, concerned over what the word libertarian means, it is anything but Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck is not a libertarian. I don't know if he even is what he says he is. Anything that's a libertarian, Glenn Beck is not. I, I, I can't really delve in any further into it. Um, I just don't take those guys seriously, and the fact that he's trying to use the moniker, it's a little a little fishy to me. I, I, I think, you know, maybe he's trying to, uh, given that he's an arm, uh, and Fox is the arm of the Republican Party, you know, attach the same stigma of the Republican Party to the Libertarian Party, you know, so that people view it in, in a negative way, uh, as opposed to what the liber Libertarian philosophy is truly about. And in international news... The number of drone strikes in Afghanistan is going up. In one year alone, Afghanistan had the most U.S. drone strikes than any other country in the drone program's existence since 2007. However, these strikes will likely become more frequent as a small number of U.S. troops leave Afghanistan. Of course, special ops forces will continue to work with a puppet government that the Afghan people do not want. Even Karzai, the U.S. puppet himself, claims U.S. special ops to be behind torture, murder of innocent civilians. So just like the WikiLeaks dock dump embarrassed the U.S. enough for, for Iraq to kick the U.S. out, if these claims come to light, it may force a faster withdrawal uh, with the Obama administration trying to, you know, of course, lay, lay claim to, you know, we're bringing the troops home faster. But, you know, that, that would be the, you know, trying to cover up the fact that they were actually kicked out. Traffic here in northern San Diego County. At the 805 northbound, um, there's a few slowdowns, uh, and that should be it. So 
Thank you all for listening to the KKSM News Brief. You're listening to KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside, PalomarCollegeRadio.com. I want to play one song by Frank Zappa before we get to my next guest for this next hour, which is Starchild, libertarian activist and erotic services provider. Um, this one is called Mom and Dad by Frank Zappa. And it has to do with uh, back in the day, you know, he the, this album, We're Only In It For The Money, has to do with hippies. And he was kind of making fun of them. But at the same time, he was also being a, a sort of a prophet in this song. Uh, talking about people that were just lying in the park, uh, shot by the cops, and their parents don't care because they're plastic robots, and they don't care about what's really going out in, in the outside world. Um, you know, and that ties back into what I was talking about, the militarization of our police force. In my own town, my own town is getting large weapons grants for paramilitarized police. It, it is also the county sheriff, but at the same time, I, do, I would love to see an audit of the Encinitas Police Department. So this is Mom and Dad by Frank Zappa. Be right back with Star Child here on KKSM, The Radio Revolution. Mom and Dad by Frank Zappa. And um, so I think some of you, especially if you're listening in your car right now on AM 1320, know that gas prices have are back up, back past uh, 450 a gallon sometimes. And I don't know what you're wondering. Why? Well, it's the same gas, isn't it? You know, they're not doing anything newer or special. No, nothing, nothing in particular, nothing that could... Uh, 
possibly make it go up other than the fact that gas prices are not going up. It's the value of your dollar that's going down. And that starts with the fact that uh, an elite group of bankers have their hands on a printing press uh, known as the Federal Reserve, and they basically make loans to themselves and their fellow bankers profiting off of themselves, really. They, uh, they, get to, they don't have to work. They just run up printing uh, they run off the presses, and what do they get paid back in? Because uh, they're loaning that money to banks or the federal government. Well, they get paid back in loans that you pay back to the banks, so it's coming from your labor, which they didn't have to do to make that money in the first place. So you're actually laboring for that. And then also through your taxes, when you get taxed, most, if not all, every single penny of tax dollar goes straight to pay back interest on the debt whether it's owed to the Federal Reserve or some other foreign bank, the whole system's intertwined uh, through this uh, Bank of Inter International Sentiments, then down under that World Bank and the IMF. So when it comes to this corrupt global financial system, um, who offers the solutions? The two political parties that are uh, an extension of that, that system, that get funded by that system, or the people who actually uh, are not funded by that system are deliberately kept underground by that system, um, such as alternative parties, you know, Libertarian Green Party, Justice Party. If you watch the alternative party debates, they are all skeptical of the Federal Reserve system and our monetary system and the corruption of, uh, of central banking. And that brings me to my next guest, who is on the, ex on the uh, Libertarian National Committee. Joining me now is Starchild. He's a libertarian activist and also is an erotic services provider for both sexes, and he definitely embodies the libertarian spirit. Starchild, welcome to the program. How are you doing? Thanks a lot, Alex. Pretty good. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself, how you discovered uh, your libertarianism, and, and what made you uh, want to actually start to fight for those liberties that you, uh, that you hold dear. Yeah, well, it's always really an interesting uh, question. <laughs> what makes someone a libertarian? To some extent, it probably is a nature versus nurture question. But um, I think that uh, growing up, you know, as a kid, uh, I was well, I started out being interested in history uh, before I was interested in politics. You know, and I, you know, as a young kid, I, I like to read about you know wars and battles and adventures and stuff like that, and. Uh, Stay a little older, I think um, it sort of I started thinking about some of the stuff on a deeper level, you know, like well, what was behind the 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 battles, you know, not the politics, you know, it's like when it mattered was when people were actually fighting about ideas or something that meant something. And um, also, I was kind of a misfit in school, especially like in junior high school. Um, high school, to some extent, I had a pretty miserable time. I wasn't really Connecting with my peers, and um, I got bullied, and and I think it, it sort of honed my sense of um, justice in the world, and and um, you know the importance of standing up for the underdog and and people who are being abused, and um, I've grown up as a Republican, uh, believe it or not, mm. <laughs> and um, then um, uh, you know I think it was kind of a, a question in some ways of, of becoming more liberal. I already had pro-freedom instincts as a Republican to a 
um, and kind of was not a typical Republican. <laughs> uh, my journalism teacher in community college, I remember saying I was the only punk Republican that he'd ever met. <laughs> and um, when I went into the military, um, around the time that I also uh, read Atlas Shrugged, uh, Ayn Rand, you know, say Atlas starts with Ayn Rand. I think she was flawed in many ways, but I also think she was a genius. And, and, you know, reading her the formative time in my life certainly had an impact. And, and ironically, being in the military also uh, made me more liberal as well. <laughs> I think seeing uh, some of that culture, what it was like, and being determined not to become a, you know, conformist, uh, or, you know, mindless soldier following orders. And anyway, um, you know, once I sort of had some contact with the Libertarian Party and started really thinking about those ideas, you know, it, at some point it, it, it just kind of clicked and it wasn't, you know, an overnight immediate thing, but a gradual kind of realization. But when I did really sort of come to understand the non-aggression principle and see that in a holistic way, you know, that was kind of like an epiphany that uh, really... Uh, you know, it's the single most important idea that I think I've encountered in my life. Uh, the idea that you're free to live your life as you choose, so long as it doesn't involve initiating force or fraud against others. That's really the idea at the heart of the Libertarian philosophy and behind the Libertarian Party. And um, I just think it's such a beautiful idea. It makes so much sense. And if the world was run, uh, you know, public policy being based on that, uh, we would all be so much better off. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So wh why is peace at the base of the libertarian viewpoint? Well, it, it, it's not peace in a, a conventional sense mm -hmm. so much as non-aggression, specifically. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a pacifist, you know. If, uh, if someone attacks you, I believe you have the right uh, to defend yourself Definitely. and to defend others who are being attacked or having force initiated against them. I think that's a moral right. Um but uh, certainly in terms of uh, foreign policy, for example, um, the libertarian uh, movement generally, the consensus interpretation of the non-aggression principle is kind of uh, one that could be described as, as peace. You know, don't want the U.S. government abroad in the world, uh, you know, intervening in other countries uh, and uh, getting into wars. Um there is, I think, uh, some legitimate disagreement about, um, you know, because in many cases if a, a regime is abusing people in another country, then that is an initiation of force, and removing the regime, um, you know, would not necessarily be uh, aggression. Of course, uh, forcing U.S. taxpayers to uh, pay for a war or to pay for anything else for that matter, if it's coercively collected money, that is aggression. So there's an issue of aggression there, but, you know, it gets a little bit complicated. Uh, I actually tend to look at the freedom movement very much in global terms and think that, yeah, uh, oppressive regimes should be overthrown. Ideally, it wouldn't be governments doing it. You know, ideally, we'd get rid of the Neutrality Act in this country that uh, criminalizes people for voluntarily going overseas and fighting as Americans did during the... Uh, Spanish Civil War, you know, in the 1930s, the group called the Abraham Lincoln Brigade went over and fought uh, against uh, Franco and the fascists. But, um, 
more recently, there's a guy uh, named Matthew Van Dyke uh, who fought in Libya against the Gaddafi regime. Uh, he was an American journalist from Maryland, Baltimore, and went under there. He was actually a prisoner of war for a short time. And fortunately, he was released and managed to come back here unharmed. But uh, so far, it doesn't seem that he's been prosecuted or anything. So it's kind of an interesting modern test case, perhaps. Definitely. And, and um, in many areas of our lives, uh, government makes peaceful, voluntary, and consenting behavior is illegal. Um, with I think some sometimes the intent to cause conformity and, and to build a also you know prison industrial complex to jail people uh, for those uh, uh, in name only crimes. Uh, so what what are the myriad of laws, local, state, and federal, that amount to censorship and policing of nonviolence uh, that uh, that um, you have a particular uh, interest in, uh, in in citing them. Yeah, well, um, I'm not really a single-issue uh, uh, <laughs> voter or activist, you know. Um, somebody just asked me about that last night, and, you know, I, I said what I, I happen to say, you know, if I have a single issue, my single issue is freedom. <laughs> mm -hmm. It just happens to have a lot of different sub-issues. It, it's, it's a little bit difficult to say what the most important issues at any given time. I mean, the two major threats that I see right now um, you know, at least as someone living in the United States, and, and for the first one, really, it's a global issue, and that is the economy, of course. I, I think that, you know, this global system that exists right now is a fiat currency backed by nothing, and, uh, you know, governments all over the world going deeper and deeper into debt um, as a result of their massive overspending and borrowing uh, money, uh, you know, and, and, of course, uh, taxing people uh, because of that, uh, either directly or indirectly through inflating the uh, currency supply and reducing the value of the money that's in all of our pockets, then, um, you know, that is leading towards economic collapse. And that's probably the single biggest issue in the world uh, right now, I would say. Um, in the United States, I think there's also a very real growing danger of this country becoming a police state. Um, you know, and that, that issue is right up there for those of us that live in this country, I think. Um, other than that, you know, there's all kinds of different issues that uh, contribute or, or tie into those issues. I mean, I'm very um, uh, concerned about the recent, uh, you know, attempts to further uh, criminalize uh, self-defense in this country with the Sandy Hook massacre, you know, fueling uh, the, the desire or opportunism of some people to pass more victim disarmament laws. That's a serious issue. Um, certainly the huge uh, incarceration rate, you know, highest in the world in the United States, and millions of uh, innocent people behind bars that are there for things that shouldn't be crimes. That's an ongoing uh, serious, serious issue of human rights abuse. And I consider all those people in jail to be political prisoners and uh, mm -hmm. encourage libertarians and the, those people themselves to, to look at themselves that way and to identify as political prisoners and realize, you know, it's not your fault that you're in jail if you didn't do anything that involves initiating force or fraud against anybody, you know, and you deserve to be out. Mm -hmm. Definitely. How do you think erosions of personal freedom eventually cause mission, mission creeping transcend into the, the state's crackdown on peaceful protesting, like you said, in regards to the police state with surveillance and, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, phony dichotomy of the term domestic terrorism, which could include you and I as libertarians. 
Yeah, well, they, they cause in a lot of different ways. I mean, I think one of the basic issues is that um, power corrupts, as, as we tend to know. Uh, you know, it's a famous uh, 19th century, I think, quote by uh, Lord Acton, a British politician. Um, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And when we say corrupts, you know, I'm not just talking about personal corruption, like, you know, just getting jobs for your family members or taking bribes from constituents or whatever, you know, we're talking about systematic corruption of uh, moral values in a sense. You know, it's like you, you get some power and maybe you go in trying to do it to improve the world, you know, but you run into obstacles. It's like people, uh, you know, aren't necessarily doing the things that you think they should be doing. And so, you know, you, you try to figure out ways to control them a little more and, and, you know, get them to change their behavior and, you know, you uh, the more you start manipulating people's lives and trying to control them, you know, it, it leads to kind of a God complex, you know, and, and well, you know, I, the world would just be, be better off if we didn't have these Jews messing everything up or whatever, you know, and so then you, you start to sending people to concentration camps and putting them in the ovens, you know, it's, it's like one thing can lead to another. It doesn't start out there usually, I don't think, but uh, it can wind up there. What, what do you think about... Um abolishing marriage as a state institution and separating church from state, which, uh, you know, uh, religion, surely the main lobby that causes all of these uh, backwards and oppressive social policies? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, governments don't have any business involved in uh, marriage or personal relationships, you know, telling people, uh, you know, how to categorize the relationship or what. I mean, their only role should be enforcing uh, contracts. If people have a contract between or among them that, uh, you know, is um, properly voluntarily entered into and, uh, you know, <laughs> not uh, demanding anything, uh, you know, like uh, slavery or, or uh, killing yourself. The provision of the terms, you, know, you get into some extreme hypothetical examples where contact enforcement might not be the best thing, but in general, I think it's the legitimate role of government to uphold contracts. Uh, but that should be, I think, the extent to which they're involved in marriage. You know, it's a personal matter between two or more, more people, and uh, governments have no business being involved with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you, sir, you live in San Francisco, certainly a place uh, that uh, once had traffic anarchy, which I think is, you know, the same spirit of freedom as abolishing marriage and, and separating church from state. Uh, describe what the state of peace, freedom, and resistance to the state is like in the town um, uh, uh, historically and modernly. Yes, <laughs> perhaps you've watched the video on the uh, the Libertarian Party of San Francisco website. Um, yeah, there's a, a video from uh, 1905, actually before the, uh, the big earthquake here in 1906, that shows... Uh, they put a camera on front of a streetcar or something just going down Market Street, the main thoroughfare here. And it, it, you see, like, you know, the, the, it, it would appear to modern eye to be chaos. I mean, there's, there's people crossing the street, you know, on foot and on horse and you know, various vehicles uh, and at all different angles. And, um, you know, there's no traffic lights. You know, there's no traffic signs or regulations. Um, but, but it basically works. Um, you know, um, admittedly, there's probably, uh, you know, I think there's a higher uh, percentage of traffic injuries and so forth than there are now. Um, 
but uh, you know, part of that was uh, you know didn't have the the modern technology. I mean, now they have uh, uh, Google cars, <laughs> which um, you know can be driven around safely, uh, you know, remote controlled. Uh, um, you know, I, of course, I haven't seen them yet on the road in person, but uh, supposedly they've tested very well. And if it wasn't for government intervention and control, we'd probably have things like this already, and we'd have uh, things like sensors on the road that stopped uh, accidents and crashes and other things on the side of the road, and all kinds of other uh, you know technology that doesn't get developed as quickly, uh, you know, in a in a status or partially status uh, economy. But uh, Get back to the question about San Francisco. You know, it's it's a, it's a fascinating city because it does have uh, this um, kind of anarchic uh, history with the, the gold rush. I mean, San Francisco was a tiny you know town in, in 1849 prior to the gold rush. You know, a few thousand people. Uh, California just uh, you know become independent from uh, Mexico, and um, you know was about to become part of the United States. And gold was discovered. In this and all these people started coming from the eastern part of the United States and the rest of the world, and uh, you know they, they just basically abandoned their ships in, in San Francisco and, and rushed up to the, the gold fields, you know. But then they started, gold started coming back, and it, it you know boomed the economy here, and there was uh, many more uh, men than women, and it, it, it created um, yeah, in some ways, kind of a, a wild west atmosphere, but uh, arguably in, in kind of a good sense. I mean, there were no uh, laws against prostitution. Uh, you know, it was a very freewheeling uh, place. You know, it did, uh, I think, eventually re- result in some, uh, you know, uh, government backlash, you could say, or moves away from that that were pretty dramatic. I mean, California and basically San Francisco saw the first, uh, you know, anti-drug law, you know, in the United States against opium. There was a lot of racism against the Chinese. When you also had the first real uh, anti-immigrant act, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and uh, today, of course, uh, you know, San Francisco, and, and some ways, is a very statist place. Uh, you know, being run generally by Democrats, and uh, you know, there's a lot of economic regulations and controls and so forth. Um, when it comes to civil liberties, so personal liberties, it's still definitely a lot freer than uh, most places in the United States or in the world, for that matter. You know, the, the cities of Washington, marijuana, you know, basically <laughs> smoking on the street without. Uh, much problem, I, I think. Uh, uh, there's um, recently it's, it's been gentrifying somewhat, so there's been some negative aspects of that. Uh, you know, the city board of supervisors uh, recently passed a ban on nudity. Um, there, there's been protests against that. There's regular protests here against uh, war and police brutality, and you know all this sort of thing. The larger San Francisco area also just culturally has been a real uh, hub of exciting new ideas and things in the world. I mean, even Silicon Valley, um, you know, arguably, arguably kind of grew out of the, the San Francisco area culture. You know, as did the, the Summer of Love with the 50s and the 60s, and Ian's and Love Ends and all those sort of things. And, uh, and then uh, Burning Man, uh the festival that happened every year in Nevada desert, uh, you know, started in San Francisco. Um, you know, it's just been, uh, it continues to be a really interesting place culturally, I think. Um, Northern California, but sort of specifically centered on this area. San Francisco, Oakland, and, and a lot of Northern California 
have taken some measures to, to stand up to the federal government in regards to medical cannabis, which is state law, but here in San Diego, uh, they've been cozying up for, uh, to the government to, for federal grants, uh, for, for drones and more. Uh, what's it like on the ground um, where the federal government has been harassing local caregivers like Harborside and Oaksterdam University and, and average citizens as well, but in the environment of actually, you know, having a, 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 you know, the city governments uh, make an attempt to at least stand up for them? Yeah. Well, Harborside uh, actually is uh, located in Oakland, right across the bay from San Francisco. But that's, that's probably the biggest um, uh, cannabis uh, distributor in the world as far as uh, you know, ones that can legally operate anyway. Um, and uh, the uh, medical cannabis movement really did uh, start here. Um, in fact, the guy that um, arguably is sort of most responsible for it in a way lived a couple blocks from me, uh, Dennis Perone, who was the main author of uh, Prop 215 that passed in 1996 in California, which was the country's first uh, medical uh, cannabis law. And uh, before that, he illegally ran a cannabis dispensary uh, here in San Francisco. And, um, uh, you know, the, the movement, you know, again, really has, uh, you know, largely uh, been centered around here, although now it's sort of, uh, you know, mushroomed in 14 states, I think, has passed the different forms of medical cannabis laws. But, uh, um, yeah, there's there's definitely been, um, you know, resistance here against the feds, and I think the feds have also tried to target, uh, you know, places like Harborside that are big and visible and really trying to go after the main uh, players in the, in the movement as far as the visibility of legal cannabis use. Um, you know, we've got a Northern California U.S. attorney here, Melinda Hag, who uh, is terrible, you know, she's really... Uh, tried to, uh, uh, you know, go after dispensaries, partly by sending their landlords uh, threatening letters, you know, to, to try to get the landlords to take the uh, dispensaries off their property, um, you know, or, or risk uh, having their own assets seized by the federal government, this kind of thing. Uh, you know, a lot of the people here on the hardcore left, um, you know, you won't find a lot of love for President Obama. You know, I think probably a lot of them held their noses and voted for him uh, last year, but um, a lot of them didn't also, you know. And a lot of, uh, you know, when, when Obama came to Oakland uh, last year, you know, there's a big protest over there, which was largely a, a cannabis movement protest, you know. But, uh, you know, thousands of people out there in, in a very liberal city protesting against Obama, which uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't expect, but, um, you know, the people who are principled on the left uh, are not fans of this at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, and for those just joining, I'm speaking with Starchild. He's a liberty activist. And we're going to go ahead and, and take a real quick break, but we'll come back on the other side. Uh, continuing here with Starchild. Popular music played by a modern band. Listen to all this music in the air. Listen! Oh, Palomar, sweet, sweet Palomar, I only wish I knew more about you. Where can I find all the latest news and updates and info and events happening on campus? Ow, I just 
bumped into this big red box in the middle of the sidewalk. What is this? Oh, it's the telescope. Palomar College's independent newspaper. The award-winning student-run newspaper has been publishing since 1946. The telescope showcases the work of students studying in the college's journalism program. The telescope publishes 11 times each semester, every other Monday except for weeks containing holidays or final exams. So the next time you're on campus, just look for the red newspaper box and pick up the latest copy of the telescope. Palomar College's independent newspaper. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and not of KKSM, Palomar College, its staff, the board of directors, or station management. You're listening to KKSM, Palomar College Radio. Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. What about Sabbath? ACDC. Motorhead! KKSM Oceanside, AM 1320. Let's get rocking! Welcome back to Free Thought Radio. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle. Uh, before we get back to the interview with Star Child, um, it is 7.30, time for the KKSM News Brief. In local news, Encinitas residents sue over a yoga program established by voluntary grants. And uh, this is for elementary uh, school. Uh, a uh, organization uh, gave a large sum of money to voluntarily to the school uh, to get children to do yoga. Uh, it's shown that, you know, of course, helps relax them, keep them from uh, acting out, of course, for the hyperactive people. And regarding to my guest in the first hour, you know, hemp seed foods can do that uh, to give them good protein as opposed to high fructose corn syrup. And, uh, and, um, but unfortunately, these, uh, uh, some parents, uh, think it's, uh, against their religious freedom, um, to have this. They're saying it's imposing Hinduism on the class. Um, so opt out. Don't ruin it for everybody. Uh, uh it's unfortunate. Um, and it, it could, it could certainly, uh, be good physical education. It is stretching. It is stretching muscle muscles, you know, better than uh, trunk rotations. You know, it, can, it might actually uh, make the uh, the class a little less uh, militaristic. Given that during PE, oh god, I felt like trunk rotations and all those calisthenics were just the worst. And and drill sergeant PE teachers, um, you know, I think I think it might make the uh, kids. Uh, education experience a lot better um you know i i you know i i have a problem with you know cutting people out to try to make them uh you know a certain way and i feel like that pe kind of just made us all you know conformist uh zombies in some way um you know that uh we must obey the uh, uh the pe teacher and uh pe teachers don't get a accountability i mean there are a lot of abusive pa teachers out there um and it's just unfortunate uh that they have to sacrifice uh some physical activity um due to some litigious frivolous parents um so in national news i talked about in the last hour aaron swartz um files have revealed that the fbi was surveilling him they were trying to get his driver's license info his location and more why is this? Well, in addition to what he, you know, what you know, he was being charged for uh, by his over that overzealous prosecutor, 
But um, this FBI thing, you know, he, Aaron Swartz himself, sent a few Freedom of Information requests to the government about Bradley Manning's treatment. He, WikiLeaks also revealed that Aaron was a WikiLeaks uh, con- or collaborator. And um, uh, uh, um, he, had a, he had written an open information manifesto about opening the Internet and making uh, knowledge more accessible. You know, that, that manifesto was made public recently, but, unfor- but I can bet you that the FBI got it beforehand and did not like what, it had, what he had to say. Because do they work for the people? Or do they work for the interests that Aaron was trying to bring down? I also talked about the FBA, F, FAA sorry, keeping quiet on domestic drones on how many there are. They're dodging freedom of information requests. Obama passes uh, the uh, CISPA bill, internet law, by executive order. Now, CISPA, Aaron Swartz called the Patriot Act for the Internet. So it basically uh, allows, you know, Department of Homeland Security, FBI to kind of see what you're doing on Facebook and other social media. They say it's for cyber terrorism, but it's really for political activism. And really, who's the main kind of cyber people around? That's anonymous. But I'd say they're more like, I've always said this, they're more like Ben Franklin than they are Bin Laden. I respect them. Um, And it also, there is this copyright alert system. If you, by chance, download any file that's considered copyrighted, which is pretty much going to be everything, um, you get a few uh, videos. They're going to send you videos personally uh, uh, to educate you on the ills of privacy. And if you keep doing it five or six more times, they're going to start to slow down your Internet. They'll keep sending you those brainwashing videos, though. Uh, the Internet was designed, again, to be the 1776 to the real world's 1984. Unfortunately, Obama just brought 1984 to the Internet. Down with E. Big Brother. Uh, the Obama drug czar claims that they are going to crack down on legal marijuana in Colorado and Washington. Glenn Beck is trying to bring uh, his TV program to cable TV. But I'd say beware, he's calling himself a libertarian. Uh, Glenn Beck is not a libertarian. He was even going to change the name from the Blaze to Global Libertarian Network. What a disgrace. Stop trying to steal it, Glenn. Oh, God. In other national news, don't talk to the FBI. Uh, Freedom of Information Act requests show FBI of San Francisco abusing their community outreach program for intelligence gathering purposes. The FBI attempted to infiltrate, spy on, and even considered assassinating members of the Occupy movement. They were specifically trying to undermine First Amendment protected activity. Now, Flex Your Rights is a great uh, video website. Go there. Ten Rules for Dealing with Police. Uh, They talk about one of them, uh, you know, allowing the police into your home. They're going to knock on your door. We have this new community program. It's designed for your safety. Uh, can we come in and look around? And, and it's a real uh, dramatization of, of a real account of an old lady who got busted for pot that wasn't hers. They come around, they start snooping around her house because it's sort of like a she. Uh, they're looking for you know guns or people that break into homes and uh, some stupid excuse. They start looking around her stuff, as bad as that is. And they look under the couch and they find some pot and then they arrest Granny. And, you know, that just goes to show the same thing. They're going to come to you saying, oh, we're here to help. We're here for public safety. 
but they're really there to gather information, again, for uh, First Amendment protected activity, looking to get keep tabs on activists. Going back to the Occupy thing, um, they consider libertarians to be domestic terrorists. You know, the domestic terrorist thing is, is thrown around as, as much as, you know, any other broadly defined word. You know, people that are peaceful could be targeted by the FBI because the FBI, FBI is really police for the two parties. They want to quell opposition to their little uh, scheme they've got going on there uh, with, you know, no choices in our election. And if that means detaining, arresting people, shutting down movements, that's what they're going to do. Uh, Justice Sotomayor stands up to racist war on drugs. A Texas prosecutor used the defendant's race as supposed proof of illicit drug crimes. The prosecutor told the jury that the men were together in a hotel room. He says, quote, and, you know, I, I talk about the war on drugs being racist and, and, you know, how I want to bring light to that to celebrate Black History Month. This crazy lawyer said, you've got African-Americans, you've got Hispanics, you've got a bag full of money. Does that tell you a light bulb doesn't got, go off in your head and say this is a drug deal? Not so typical, not so atypical, you know, um, that this type of thing happens. So Sotomayor refused to deny appeal on the grounds it would violate or, or on the grounds it would validate the prosecutors or outrageous claims. Um, and and uh, in other national news, there's not so much cognitive dissonance from drones. You know, I've talked about in the past that drone pilots, since they sit in an office building in the U.S. mainland, do not undergo the same psychological effects of killing someone when they are on the other side of the planet. But a new study shows that drone pilots do suffer from PTSD. I would hope this results in peaceful political protest resignations by employees who do fly the drones, because unlike the battlefield, you can walk away from your killer joystick in a cubicle. In international news, Obama deploys 100 troops to Niger to establish another drone base. This time, the base is not secret like in Saudi Arabia, but this further demonstrates the Obama administration's continuing of the Bush doctrine of preemptive war, as well as neo-colonialism of Africa. It's only fitting that we went into Mali with the French, and Mali used to be a French colony. Uh, the drones are likely to be used for Mali. Um, uh, another undeclared war, which the Obama administration went over the head of Congress to invade that country. Drones do terrorize nations and do kill civilians and will further fuel terrorism from those who wish to seek equity in indiscriminate killings of innocent civilians from the other side. The Niger government is probably is, is okay with this, but like many African regimes, the regimes are cozy to the U.S. to keep foreign aid, which is really guns and money, flowing into their coffers from the U.S., which they do not give to the people nor allow for the people to thrive on their own accords due to the lack of individual liberty, both economic liberty and social liberty. And the weather in San Marcos, where KKSM broadcasts out of, is currently 56 degrees. And for those sitting in traffic listening to AM 1320, any problem areas are on the 805 northbound, um, north off the 8, uh, 46 miles per hour slowdown. My name is Alex Fiddle, broadcasting live from Palomar College. This has been your KKSM News Brief. Now continuing back with the show, um, back to my guest, Starchild. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm on the line with Starchild. He's a libertarian activist. So uh, we were talking about cannabis before the break. Many people say that both prohibitions of alcohol and cannabis started on, on Jekyll Island, um, given who is, who is behind the Fed, uh, because uh, both mash from alcohol and hemp could all be turned into biofuel and compete seriously with other alternatives such as oil and uh, you know, John D. Rockefeller was one of the authors of the Federal Reserve Act, or at least a representative uh, from his interests. Uh, the Federal Reserve is, of course, a, a private bank with quasi-governmental mandates due to uh, their their legal on monopoly, a uh, uh, legal monopoly on currency, obviously backed up by the government, police with guns. Um, talk a bit about who was at Jekyll, the Jekyll Island meeting that created the Federal Reserve, and why perpetual war, corporatism and the income tax are at the root uh, of their creation. We've just had the same thing for the past hundred years, given that this is 100th anniversary, 2013. Yeah, well, um, if you've probably read uh, Ed, Ed Griffin's book, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, I actually haven't read that book myself, but I'm aware of it, and I'm certainly aware of the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the Federal Reserve and, and a lot of the problems it causes, but I couldn't really get into the specific people that were at that meeting, and Honestly, I don't think that is that important in and of itself, who, who was at the meeting or kind of the, the motives there. I mean, and, and it might be a little bit of reach to blame prohibition on the Fed. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the first uh, you know, drug law in the United States was 1882 in San Francisco, California, you know. So I, I think the authoritarian impulses were, were already there. Um, I would also tend to, um, you know, I don't really take a conspiratorial view of it exactly that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, men in the shadows and, and private industry, women at the same point, too, you know, pulling the strings, kind of. I think the government really is the, the, the seat of power in the United States. Uh, the Federal Reserve, admittedly, is a quasi, I would call it a quasi-government agency, um, you know, but to the extent that you... Uh, have control. It's kind of like government is as government does. Um, you know, they have, uh, you know, a power uh, legal currency through the government, uh, and that, you know, I would say makes them part of the government. I mean, the President of the United States appoints the, uh, you know, the head of the Federal Reserve, and, uh, um, you know, it's definitely sort of a revolving door uh, between them and, uh, you know, private industry, the banking uh, world, and so forth, but that's, that's true for a lot of the rest of government as well. So I, I guess, uh, I mean, I, I definitely support, you know, I first audit that and then abolish it <laughs> mm -hmm. after you've done a, a thorough audit would be my preference. I, I just think getting, getting sound money is key, but I also tend to agree with Ron Paul and others that really just, um, you know, the important thing is to allow people to use alternate currencies, and then the market would kind of take care of the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What do you think about all, uh, competing currencies? Would we live in a, in a more prosperous place if local establishments accepted gold, silver, local currencies, bitcoins, e even U.S. dollars for those that, who insist upon staying on the Titanic because, you know, and not have the government decide that it could be really anything that uh, uh, you think is of value? Yeah, well, it's actually, you know, almost a matter of uh, economic survival more than, than prosperity. I mean, it, 
Petro government is, is like $16 trillion in debt. That's only, you know, what's on the books. There's tens of trillions more in unfunded, unfunded uh, coming liabilities that are protected as a result of programs like Social Security and, and Medicare and, uh, you know, the continued uh, pattern of, of government spending. I mean, even with all that debt, you know, they're still adding to it at a massive rate, not even cutting. I mean, if they started cutting, uh, you know, real cuts in spending today, I mean, it would still be a huge problem, but they're not even doing that. And, you know, with all this additional fiat currency going out into the world, um, you know, it, it seems like it's a question of time before hyperinflation. Um, economists disagree on this. Uh, you know, you have different theories, but... Uh, I don't think there's any responsible economists out there saying it's not going to cause a massive problem one way or another, whether it's hyperinflation or stagflation or, uh, you know, just being in an ongoing, uh, you know, economic slump, uh, you know, like, like Japan has been for the past, uh, you know, decade and a half or so, uh, but, but worse. Um, but, but it does seem like, um, uh, I, you know, people really extent people can use hard currency, eventually I think they will. Uh, starting to, the government is trying to prevent this because it's a threat to their control. But, um, you know, it, 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 as you probably know, the Federal Reserve, since uh, it's been in existence the past century, has already, uh, during that period, reduced the value of the dollar uh, to less than 4% of what it was in 1913, you know. In real economic terms, uh, setting aside the inflation, you know, if you had uh, a dollar, um, you know, you'd buy about four cents worth of, uh, you know, what you could buy with that dollar in 1913. Um, so this uh, process by which they're destroying monetary value is only accelerating with all the spending and the debt. And so, uh, you know, over the next 20 years, we could see, again, as much damage uh, as there has been in the past 100. I mean, I'm just picking that number randomly. I don't know if it's 20 years or whatever, but, you know, I, I can well imagine that in the next uh, couple decades, uh, you know, we might, uh, by that point, have a situation where all you have now is only worth four cents uh, of what you could buy now. You know, so a loaf of bread, you know, might cost 25 times uh, what it does today in real economic terms. And so if wages don't keep up with that, then, uh, you know, or income of some type for people who are on a fixed retirement income or whatever, uh, they're going to have serious problems, you know, unless people are independently wealthy, there's going to be real, uh, real poverty and hardship uh, of a kind that uh, hasn't been seen in the United States probably for a century or more. Do you think uh, the United States wars are just uh, terrorism with bigger budgets? Well, that might be going a little bit too far. Um, I, I think terrorism, uh, the term, you know, is, is widely abused, um, including certainly by governments calling people terrorists who aren't really, you know, um, Taliban fighters, for example, in Afghanistan who, uh, you know, attacked U.S. troops and were sent to Guantanamo, you know. That's not terrorism. Even if you're not wearing a uniform, if you're attacking government military personnel, you know, who are engaged in a war, you know, or even attacking the uh, leaders, you know, the civilian leaders who are commanding those military personnel, that's, you know, I think a legitimate act of war. 
Now, now the cause that you're fighting for might not be just. I mean, I certainly think the Taliban are a horrific group. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't agree with the kind of uh, government they uh, established or want to establish again, which is very misogynist and, and oppressive and everything else. Um, but, uh, you know, those acts aren't terrorists. Uh, some of the other things they do are terrorists. You know, certainly when they commit suicide bombings against civilians, uh, that's terrorism. Uh, you know, when the U.S. government engages in drone strikes against civilians, uh, that's terrorism as well. Um, the U.S. government uh, overthrowing the Taliban regime, uh, you know, and, and bombing uh, the Taliban, uh, you know, when there's no civilians around, that's not terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, dropping bombs from the air is, is, I think, very problematic because uh, in most cases you are going to expose civilians to uh, danger. And in fact, in the Iraq War, the U.S. government deliberately um, increased the, uh, I think it was the first Gulf War, uh, at one point I remember reading about how they were deliberately increasing the height at which uh, pilots would fly when doing these uh, bombing missions because, uh, you know, it was safer that way. A few of them would get shot down, uh, which is undoubtedly true, but um, when you bomb from a higher altitude, you bomb with less accuracy, and uh, that was basically a deliberate calculated decision to increase civilian casualties uh, in order to reduce U.S. Uh, military casualties. Um, totally morally indefensible in my view, and, and yeah, I would, I would say that uh, borders on, on terrorism. Uh, really, it's terrorism when you're deliberately targeting civilians, but it is a little bit of a big area, I think, uh, in terms of when you want to say it becomes a call to deliberate targeting. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are some of the consequences of our foreign policy because the, the U.S. government was instrumental in in creating al-Qaeda and even, uh, to some extent, the Taliban. But uh, so why, why are we even really pretending to fight uh, this so-called terrorism when it was, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush and Donald Rumsfeld, to name a few, who, you know, were involved uh, to help uh, fund them in the in the first place? How, how can we uh, say we're, especially when we're doing this now with what we're doing in Syria is funding rebellions that have the same members of al-Qaeda, but in order to fight al-Qaeda? Um, uh, well, what's your what's your take on, on just kind of the hypocrisy and irrationality and kind of self-perpetuating uh, cycle of, you know, just creating new terrorism and uh, uh, more, uh, creating enemies faster than and then we can kill them, really? Yeah, well, um, the way you ask the question actually raises a really uh, important point, I think. Um, and this is really here something for people to think about because it's not how most people are used to looking at it. Um, since September 11, 2001, uh, in the period immediately following that, when, when there was all the kind of flag waving, rally around the flag, you know, American, uh, uh, you know, nationalist sentiments in this country, I really started becoming aware of the phenomenon of nationalism more than I had previously, and what uh, pernicious influence it is in the world, uh, not just in the United States, but in other countries. Um, it's been said that war is the health of the state, uh, in his quote by Randolph Bourne. Um, I think nationalism is the lifeblood of the state. Uh, it's what makes people kind of think of government as an extension of themselves on some level and be willing to identify with government and its, uh, its agenda. And, um, uh, you know, the, the question you ask is, you know, so what? You know, what's our foreign policy? What are we doing? Well, 
the important thing to recognize is that it's not us, it's not the people, you know, it's the U.S. government, that's a separate entity. Mm-hmm. Government doesn't really represent the people. I mean, yes, there's, uh, you know, a modicum of democracy in this country, uh, generally run by the, the two-party cartel, as I call it, the, the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, neither of those parties, uh, you know, faithfully represents their grassroots followers, even if those uh, grassroots followers had pro-freedom or libertarian ideas, which they generally don't to a large extent, but they're more pro-freedom at the grassroots level on both sides of the political spectrum uh, than, uh, you know, the leadership of those parties are. And you saw this uh, starkly on display last year at the Democrat Republic Convention, which really oh, yeah. is really a great dog and pony shows at this point. I mean, there were a couple of votes, one in each party, where uh, they just blatantly, uh, you know, ruled uh, the opposite of the way that the delegates were voting. You know, they ignored what the delegates wanted and just rammed through what, uh, you know, they wanted to have happen. On the Democrat side, it was uh, relating some language in their platform about uh, being under God. Um, you know, the delegates wanted to get rid of, and, and the, uh, the leadership just overwrote them. And uh, on the Republican side, it was uh, with the Ron Paul delegates, and, uh, you know, trying to basically make it harder for the grassroots um, uh, members of the Republican Party to exercise control. And in, in each case, you know, there, there was a vote, and it was obvious the, the majority was on the other side, and they just basically disregarded that. And um, that, that uh, uh, you know, on top of, of course, all the ballot access problems that, uh, you know, are thrown up uh, hurdles against uh, alternative parties uh, getting on the ballots, uh, you know, candidates not allowed into the presidential debates and into other debates. You know, some some incumbents just refuse to debate uh, here in San Francisco, you know, or uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, quote-unquote represented by uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, she first got elected in, uh, I believe, it was 1984, and since that first uh, time she was elected, she has not debated her challengers once. You know, the very first time she got in, I think she debated her uh, opponents in that race. And since then, she just refuses to debate. And the media uh, let her get away with that. They don't make a big issue of it. And uh, that, that's the state of democracy in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. You know, and, the and government we... can't be said uh, at any meaningful sense, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we prop... We... Prop up all kinds of dictators and not so uh, good actors around the world, from Egypt to Bahrain, <laughs> e- even. Uh, well, again, we. we <laughs> but this is the thing, Alex. We we don't do that. It's not us. Oh it's, yeah, it's the, the government. government. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> and and it, it is a difficult uh, sort of linguistic habit to cure ourselves of because uh, it's so ingrained, and I, I still catch myself flipping up and saying we are us when I, I mean the government. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you go out and you know, look at any newspaper, as an example, I, I often give, you know, if you open it up and you find there's a story about, uh, say, new housing sales, you know, up uh, 2% this year or something. If it doesn't specify a frame of reference, you know, they'll mean in the United States, generally, if you're reading a newspaper in the United States. And people will assume that the United States is the frame of reference and that's a statistic, uh, even without it being said, because they're used to. Uh, thinking in a nationalistic mindset where where the the us, the we, is presumed to be Americans, the United States, that this is the, the level we can uh, should think about the world. But actually, it's completely arbitrary. You know, it's like I'm physically closer, and you're physically much closer to uh, people in Tijuana, for example, than you are to 
people in Florida, you know. Mm-hmm. Yet this this nationalistic mindset assumes that that the people in Florida should somehow be, uh, you know, uh, more. You should see them as having greater connection to you, uh, you know, that their lives are more valuable uh, than the lives of the people in Tijuana. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media in this country has a, a definite bias towards uh, reporting uh, when Americans are killed, but that's bigger news than when non-Americans are killed, you know, as if oh, yeah. the lives of Americans somehow have more value. And, of course, that has implications for the way that China government behaves, making decisions, like I mentioned earlier, deciding to fly, you know, the bombing planes higher in order to save American lives at a cost of, you know, more innocent civilian casualties for Americans because their lives aren't considered as important. Mm-hmm. You're listening to KKSM Oceanside, AM 1320, The Radio Revolution. This is Free Thought Radio. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle. Be sure to check out the website, freethoughtmedia.org for those just joining I'm speaking with Starchild he's a member of the Libertarian Party National Committee um, uh, actually I, I uh, placed the nomination for him on the convention floor National Convention uh, awesome time there um, and he is also a bisexual erotic services provider you know in truly embodying you know the the freedom message of, of the non-aggression principle. Yeah, if if, if one if even one uh, person under the age of eighteen in the U.S. was killed indiscriminately uh, by accident, even with a drone strike, the media outrage would be incredible. But we but um, we don't hear about the hundreds upon hundreds of innocent people, reportedly, even uh, that fall victim to these drone strikes. You know, I, I, I hope the outrage would, would be incredible because something's got to yeah. stop these uh, murders, you know. But and, and sometimes it takes, uh, you know, people feeling it closer to home, as it were. You know, that if U.S. civilians uh, being killed by drones, yeah, maybe they will start to take the issue more seriously. But, uh, you know, partly it's just, you know, government is, is out of control in this country. Even when people do take this stuff seriously, you know, there isn't always much they can quickly do about it in political terms. You know, and people really have to, in funding, just to stop voting for incumbent politicians, stop voting for Democrats and Republicans. Uh, you know, resist in, in in whatever ways you you can that are that are ethical. Um, you know, don't cooperate with government control. Don't don't give government more control over your life. Don't support higher taxes on anybody. You know, it's a divide and conquer strategy they use. Oh, we'll just raise taxes on the wealthy, or we'll just raise taxes on corporations. You know, or we'll just, uh, you know, uh, stop, um, you know, poor people from being able to sleep in their cars. You know, we'll criminalize that or something. You know, we'll, it, it, you know, it's, it's like the famous poem by Martin D. Muller, the pastor in Nazi Germany, you know, who read the poem. You know, he talked about welfare state came for the communists, and I didn't uh, just stand up and say anything because I wasn't a communist, you know, and then they came for the gypsies, and then they came for the Jews, and so on. Um, you know, it, it, it's like that. Uh, you really look at the, the conflict in the world today as being a conflict between the people of the world and the governments of the world. It's like the people of Iran are not enemies of the people of the United States. Uh, I have friends who went to Iran, they report that people there are generally, you know, very friendly, uh, you know, uh, not anti-American. And it's the regime around that's the problem. 
But you know, when you have politicians say things like, "Well, we can't let we can't let Iran get nuclear weapons," you know, what what they they don't distinguish between the people and the government. So the government the enemy, but there's not so much a threat to people in the United States as a threat to people in Iran. You know, the biggest threat to people in Iran is the Iranian regime. The biggest threat to people in the United States is the United States government. You know, the biggest threat to people in Japan is the Japanese government. And you can go around the world like that. Um, and, and so people in different countries, I think, need to unite and realize that they have a uh, common interest in overthrowing, uh, throwing off the oppressive change of government. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are some of the um, human rights abuses that the the U.S. Um, you know stands by uh, by them? You know, giving other countries foreign aid, and uh, how can we invade for democracy when we clearly have a corrupt two party system? What's the hypocrisy in that? Yeah, well, again, it's not us invading. <laughs> you know, it's this U.S. government. Um, you know, so the, the sooner we stop seeing them as part of us, or somehow a legitimate representative of us, um, you know, the quicker I think we can see, uh, you know, that this is uh, morally a problem. And uh, by sort of, uh, you know, by, by saying uh, we don't authorize this, we don't take responsibility, we the people can speak directly to the rest of the world. You know, there are a lot of people out there in other countries who, who do, um, you know, hate Americans. Um, because of what the U.S. government is doing, because they don't differentiate between the people of the United States and the government of the United States. I mean, this this is, uh, you know, what, what fuels terrorism, in a sense. You know, when al-Qaeda uh, attacks the uh, uh, World Trade Center, and, and, and I, you know, I'm not a, a conspiracy theorist uh, to the extent that I believe it wasn't al-Qaeda, by the way. <laughs> I do think they were involved in that. Uh, whether the people in the U.S. government knew or, or had any role in any of that is, is a different question, but I think there were people in those planes who were al-Qaeda terrorists who flew them to the trade center, and, uh, uh, you know, what happened at the Pentagon is a little less clear, but anyway, my point is that, um, you know, they attacked uh, civilians in, in the World Trade Center. Thousands of people died, and, and that wasn't the U.S. government. You know, if they had just attacked the U.S. government, that would have been a legitimate military action. And that would have actually been going after the source of the problem, but uh, you know they didn't distinguish between the government, which is the source of the uh, U.S. government policies that they're objecting to in the Middle East, and the American people, who in many cases actually opposed those policies and didn't have anything to do with it in a direct sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I may have lost question of this. Like the countries again, uh, that the that the government uh, that they prop up around the world uh, that they that. Are obvi- often oppressive, and and but on the other side, for the governments that don't want to do our bidding, uh, uh, right. we go after them for human rights, even though we stand well, by abuses yeah. in other countries. But, but 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 not our bidding. They don't want to do the U.S. government's oh, yeah. bidding, and it's not the, you know, it's, it's the, big, the governments there that yeah. don't want to do the U.S. government's bidding. It's the same thing in those countries. You know, it's like the. You mentioned Bahrain, and that's a, a great example of the, the double standard uh, being employed by the U.S. government. Certainly, I mean, Bahrain is, is a monarchy, um, you know, which basically a monarchy is a, a dictatorship, you know, a little bit more colorful and romantic terms. You know, mm-hmm. people have a, a soft spot for princes and kings and, and so on mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, fairy tale. I was, you know, they, the king, you know, he's such a wonderful guy, you know, it's like, well, you know, he might be a wonderful guy or he might not, you know, but 
basically he's a dictator and, and power corrupts again, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, you know, if you have a, a, a monarchy, um, basically in Bahrain what you have is, is a minority oppressing a majority. You know, most Bahrainis are Shiite Muslims and uh, uh, the government uh, is not. And um, they're maintaining their control by cracking down on the free speech, jailing people, uh, you know, using the usual riot police uh, tactics with, with tear gas and all this kind of thing to maintain their control and not allow democracy. And uh, the U.S. government, after that, it was a big deal and important to have uh, democracy in Egypt, although only after the Mubarak regime that they supported was kind of on the ropes. Uh, maybe they just haven't reached that point yet in Bahrain that they feel the regime is enough on the ropes that they have to uh, turn uh, turn sides and abandon their allies. Uh, um, but it's it's an obvious double standard. Um, you know, certainly the U.S. government talked extensively about, uh, you know, uh, the Iranian people needing to, uh, you know, uh, rise up and uh, assert democracy in that country. But, you know, they don't say that about Bahrain. And, and what's the difference? Well, the only difference is that the uh, Iranian regime is one that uh, is uh, at odds with the U.S. government, and the Bahraini regime is one that uh, the U.S. government supports and helps to prop up and keep the power. So, yeah, I mean, you can go around the world and find all kinds of double standards like that. And, of course, it's not just the U.S. government. Uh, but I, I think the U.S. government used to have uh, a foreign policy that was a little bit less uh, you know, transparently based on, on national interests. And um, the U.S. government used to be more democratic uh, than it is now, at least to some extent, although uh, there are other ways in which if you go back farther, it was less democratic and not letting women vote, for example. The expectation, I think, among people in the United States, uh, at least to some extent, and, and people around the world to some extent, is, is that the United States will stand for democracy and human rights, um, because traditionally it's been better on average than a lot of other countries. Um, there's a couple of international freedom indexes. Uh, the Heritage Institute and the Fraser Institute both have indexes where they rate countries by economic freedom around the world, and the United States is still somewhere near the top of this list. I think they've fallen out of the top ten in at least one of those indexes, but uh, and on civil liberties, I think they'd be a lot worse at this point. I, I don't know if any did um, international civil liberties index, unfortunately, but uh, um, you know, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that the U.S. government is the most oppressive in the world, although it may be sure. the most dangerous in the world just because it's the most powerful and uh, uh, certainly in terms of military power, and it's very uh, adventurous or aggressive, you could say, in using that power. The, the, US, the U.S. government's foreign policy is definitely uh, irrepresentative of what they claim to uh, the freedoms that they uh, hold dear, like democracy, but we do have a two-party system. I'm glad for, for Ron Paul supporters who fought all the way to keep his message on, on TV, but uh, unfortunately the GOP was glad to take their money and their efforts, but ultimately scripted the delegate count, uh, making the efforts, uh, uh, you know, uh, just kind of just cutting them off right there. I think that really shows the true corruption of both party, whether Dennis Kucinich uh, getting excluded in the Democratic primary or Ron Paul in the Republican Party, that both parties will only nominate someone, uh, at least at the national level and presidential race, who, who will play ball with the, the military industrial complex and, and the Federal Reserve. But at, at the local level, you can get 
Ron Paul's and Justin Amash's and John Dennis's, uh, you know, nominated for you know their ballot spot to in order to get elected. But as you get closer to the top, the more locked in it gets. And even though at the local levels, you know, surely they had their skeletons in the closet out the wazoo. But do you think the Libertarian Party, as well as other alternative parties and independent candidates, should be taken seriously and the, and the old two-party system uh, finally abandoned? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, media generally in this country act as if there's only uh, two parties to choose from uh, or in, in certain races, you know, though. But they basically kind of act as, as, as screeners and telling the public which candidates, uh, you know, to seriously consider when voting. And it becomes a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy because if the media say, oh, well, this person's, uh, you know, uh, doing well, uh, you know, they talk about them as if they're likely to win, then people will think that they're likely to win and, and give them money to support them because they, uh, you know, want to support somebody on chance of winning, et cetera. Um, a lot of it is the fault of the uh, voting system in this country. We don't have a, a truly democratic system where, you know, each party, for example, would get a percentage of seats in the legislature or uh, Congress uh, that uh, reflects the percentage of votes that they get. A proportional representation, that system is employed in many countries and allows for multi-party uh, democracy where you really have a lot of different uh, small parties that are represented in government. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't exist here, um, and people's psychology uh, kind of discourages them from breaking out of the two-party cartel. But actually, you know, when you think about it mathematically, I mean, your your one vote isn't going to change the outcome of a national election. All you're doing is adding just a month total. And if you add in the total of a candidate or a party that has less votes, you're actually having a greater proportional impact. You know, it's all about uh, exceeding expectations. If Gary Johnson running as Libertarian candidate last year had gotten 5%, say, instead of 1% of the vote, that would have been a huge set shockwave through the political establishment. And uh, I think we would be looking at a quite different political uh, uh, climate in the United States today if that had happened. So you don't need to necessarily win an election to have a definite uh, impact. And as long as, you know, saying goes, you vote for lesser evil, you're going to wind up with evil. Um, at certain point, people just have to get off the plantation. Mm-hmm. And there's different ways to do that. Uh, there's a site called devote.org, for example, de-vote.org, where you can go and make an agreement with somebody, say if you're a Democrat, you find somebody, you know, who's a Republican, and you both go to devote.org and you have a pact where you each agree to uh, vote alternative candidate instead, and so you don't have to worry that your your vote is somehow helping the Republicans if you're a Democrat and you stop voting Democrat. Uh, you know, not that that's really something you should be worrying about anyway, because both of the two party leaderships are, are corrupt and statist, and honestly, I don't think there's that much difference between them. I mean, the media acts like there's all this difference, but you know, it comes to actually the policies that they support. I mean. Look at Obama now. He's nominating uh, Chuck Hagel, a Republican, to be uh, the new head of the CIA. And Chuck Hagel is, uh, you know, an aggressive uh, champion of these uh, drone strikes uh, that kill civilians overseas. And yet Obama's a Democrat. They're supposed to be against that kind of thing in theory, but in practice they're not. Mm-hmm. 
Definitely. And what makes the Libertarian Party different and how the philosophy in general promotes independent thought rather than even a party loyalty to itself? And what are you doing as, as a member of the state and national parties as an activist? Yeah, well, um, the, the basic thing that makes the Libertarian Party different is that, uh, you know, we are, our, our mission is not to take government power and use it in order to push through some agenda. Our agenda is to uh, decentralize government power and get it back in the hands of the people to reduce the size and cost and power of government so that they're taking less of your money, ideally not any of your money without your consent. You know, they're not trying to regulate your life and tell you what you can put in your own body and, you know, whether you have to use a seatbelt or helmet or go to jail or, uh, you know, getting rid of victim of crime laws and, and pardoning and releasing all the people that are in jail now for violating those laws. But it all goes back to the non-aggression principle that, uh, you know, the Libertarian Party is, is largely based on it as a libertarian movement, that idea that you have the right to make your own choices in life as long as those choices aren't involving initiating force or fraud. Um, to be a voting member in the Libertarian Party, you uh, must sign a pledge, actually, that you don't advocate uh, or use the initiation of force as means of achieving political or social goals. And, uh, you know, the establishment parties don't have anything like that um, another way in which we're, we're different is that, um, you know, our conventions aren't scripted dog and pony shows. We frequently have um, uh, very unexpected results. Uh, this past year, for example, at the Libertarian Party National Convention, in the election for the national chair of the party, uh, none of the above actually won the first vote. Both of the, uh, the main candidates for chair uh, you know, then we're forced to drop out of the race and we're not eligible to hold that office in that election. And we elected somebody different. In, uh, in 2004, uh, the Libertarian Party Convention, there was a huge upset. Uh, the two main presidential candidates going into the race were uh, Gary Nolan and uh, David Russo. Uh, I'm sorry, Aaron Russo. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Aaron Russo. The, uh, Filmmakers made the film uh, Freedom from Fascism. Exactly. Yeah, he was the Libertarian presidential candidate that year, and everybody thought it was going to be him or Gary Nolan. And, and they went into the debate, um, you know, kind of going after each other. And the third guy there was this guy named Michael Badnerick, who had been basically waging a, a very low budget campaign, uh, driving around the country in a car with him and his uh, campaign manager, you know, on the shoestring. And but when he got there in the debate, you know, he spoke uh, directly to the people. And sounded very presidential and gave a very good performance. And, and uh, you know, suddenly the dynamics of the whole thing shifted and the delegates started going to uh, Michael Badnerick and he ended up getting the nomination, uh, which nobody expected, <laughs> the least of all, I think, by Michael himself. Um, so this kind of thing just shows that, you know, our, our party, uh, to a large extent, really is a bottom-up uh, grassroots party, uh, you know, that is of the... The membership and uh, you know, not a leak of you know insiders running it who are just in it for the money and the power, as I think is true with the leadership of the Democrat and Republican parties. I'm actually uh, an elected representative on the Libertarian National Committee, which is the 17-member uh, 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 kind of governing body for the Libertarian Party, and. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to make our party even more uh, 
open and transparent in its leadership and more bottom-up uh, than it is now, and there's other people in the body that agree with me. Um, it's not perfect. You know, we have our, our problems and, and shortcomings, too, and there's internal political factionalism and everything else, as you'll find in every political party and movement. But um, I think compared to the establishment parties, it's just like night and day. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and describe your activism uh, locally in San Francisco to, um, uh, to give libertarians some uh, ideas for strategies for simply educating others on, on, on a free society. Well, uh, I'm both a radical and a populist, um, which might sound a little bit contradictory because, you know, a lot of people in the Libertarian Party um, movements tend to think like, well, you know, in order to appeal to the mainstream public, we have to kind of water down our ideas. You know, we have to talk to the public where they're at and, you know, maybe I'll talk about eliminating the war on drugs entirely, just kind of focus on marijuana, you know, or don't talk about getting rid of coercive taxation, just talk about cutting taxes, so this kind of thing. Uh, but I, I disagree with that. I think there's ways to be both, um, you know, radical and populist at the same time. Mm-hmm. And in San Francisco, you know, which is a very kind of uh, left-wing city, you know, I like to uh, kind of outlet the left. Um, I think the, the left is ultimately the, the real uh, uh, competition for libertarian ideas, uh, in the U.S. and in the world, because traditionally they have been the ones fighting for the underdog or appearing to fight for the underdog. You know, their, their solutions and ideas appear superficially compassionate. Like, if you think there's too much gun violence, for example, well, of course, you know, get rid of guns. Don't don't make it too easy for people to have guns. I mean, um, it, it sounds, <laughs> you know... It sounds like common sense on the surface of it until you really look at the issue. You know, it's just like, uh, you know, minimum wage costs. Well, you, people are too poor, you know, well, let's make it a law. You have to pay people more money, you know, who are working for low wages, you know, raise the minimum wage laws, this kind of thing. Um, they have super, superficially appealing uh, solutions, and we as libertarians need to figure out ways to communicate our ideas so that uh, people see that they actually are more compassionate, will do more to help poor, poor people than people on the left uh, and their ideas. Um, for example, I talk in San Francisco about uh, the fact that there's thousands of homeless people on the streets here, and this has been the case for years, even though the city's been run by Democrats, even though they spend uh, you know millions of dollars a year on programs and services like to help homeless people, but they never really seem to actually address the problem. Uh, there was a guy a few years ago who ran for mayor named Jim Reed, who wasn't actually a libertarian, but he was a building contractor, and he was concerned about this issue of homelessness, and he uh, proposed a very practical solution. Uh, he built a little house uh, in his backyard uh, that was about 10 foot by 10 foot square. Uh, it cost him about $12,000 to build, but it was very... Uh, efficiently and geniusly created uh, in that 10-foot by 10-foot space. Uh, he had a bed, you know, refrigeration, uh, storage space, uh, you know, electricity, plumbing, uh, you know, cooking, everything, you know, a single person living by themselves would need to, you know, be out of the elements and have the basic uh, amenities, you know, uh, that most people have in their homes in, in a very compact space. And uh, I point out to people here that uh, the San Francisco government could build one of these uh, Jim Reed houses for every single homeless person 
in San Francisco uh, less money point years budget of all this money they're spending on programs and services supposedly to help the homeless, you know, um, and uh, they could further decriminalize people sleeping in their vehicles, which is against the law. They could decriminalize camping in parks and public parks that, uh, you know, public common land that all of us pay for. You know, that's against the law, but uh, you know, I think homeless people are better that they're in a tent somewhere than out of the, you know, out of the elements and People actually die on the streets every winter uh, from the elements. Uh, so if you start pointing out things like this, you know, and, and, and building the houses, obviously that's not a truly a libertarian solution of governments doing it, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it points the way towards libertarian solution in terms of making these people uh, self, uh, you know, not dependent on all the ongoing government uh, welfare services. You know, if they have uh, homes to call their own and you know, are given ownership of these homes, then they start thinking more like property owners and taking pride and responsibility in their property. You know, if they have a, a telephone, uh, you know, they have an easier time being able to get a, a job. Um, you know, one, one thing and another. Um, but but nobody's talking about solutions like this on the left. You know, because there's all this nerdyism. You know, like nobody wants the, the Jim Reed home stuff in there. Their neighborhoods. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind, and then some principled people must wouldn't mind. A lot of people concerned about their property values. How they don't want uh, they don't want poor people living near them, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, these people are Democrats. These people are people running the government. Uh, you know, and, and they want to keep their their welfare programs going because they benefit people making good money in, in government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those solutions are not compassionate, and if we help people you know, who are young and idealistic and normally gravitate to the left, see that the libertarians are actually more compassionate about helping poor people and helping the marginalized, the underprivileged. You know, decriminalizing prostitution, that's another one. We, we tried that locally. I was very involved with that campaign in 2008. We had a measure here on the ballot locally uh, to decriminalize prostitution in San Francisco. It got 42% of the vote. Uh, I think we could have actually won if we had a little bit more uh, financial backing and hadn't had all the prominent local politicians, uh, you know, like the mayor and the district attorney, who's now California Attorney General, uh, Kamala Harris, you know, they both came out against it, Gavin Newsom. Um, you know, if we had had uh, uh, some local Democrats on our side, um, you know, in these positions, I think they could have actually won. Uh, so it just shows that, you know, the Democrats are not compassionate. They don't. They don't care about marginalized people like sex workers or immigrants. You know, they're not they're not for open borders. They want to criminalize people who come here and don't have government permission, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of issues like this where we can really show that uh, um, libertarians are the ones who are, who are really trying to help people. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And like you said, you know, say, saying that we care about the homeless but not in my backyard. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they actually, you know, have criminalized people for giving free food to the homeless. That's still against the law. Stay in San Francisco, and there was a period in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, you know, where activists from uh, what's called Food Not Bombs were regularly being arrested, and they'd have their vehicles and food confiscated and everything else mm-hmm. just for feeding the homeless, you know, in public, because they didn't have health permits to stay. And uh, so, you know, there's all these... these uh, these regulations that sound good. It's like, well, of course you, you want to have health regulations. You don't want people to eat poison. You know, when they go to a restaurant or somebody sells your food, you can 
be confident that, that, that you know you're, you're getting good, good food and, and prepared in sanitary conditions and all these things. It sounds compassionate on the surface. It sounds like common sense and something people would want. But but you know they don't tell you well this is going to be ended up uh, used to uh, criminalize people that are trying to feed the homeless. You know you don't you don't see the uh, you know the unintended consequences right away. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want, want good regulation, don't look to the government. Look to websites like Yelp. You know it's like if I wanted to find out you know whether a business was reputable or whatever, I'd, I'd go on Yelp. I'd read consumer reports. You know or at the underwriters laboratory or. Uh, you know, uh, what people are saying on the forums and Craigslist, things like this. You know, I wouldn't go to some government agency, you know. <laughs> it's like you think that the regulations are really uh, guaranteeing safety. You know, it's like you know, how often do they send inspectors to, you know, inspect food at restaurants? You know, once a year, you know, these inspectors getting uh, paid off and bribed by restaurant owners, uh, you know, not to report everything. It'll look the other way on, on some problems and issues probably, you know. I don't think that's any kind of a meaningful guarantee. You know, the, the voluntary sector does a much better job at regulation than government does. Mm-hmm. It's much more reliable, and it doesn't involve coercively taking people's money through taxation, and it doesn't mean things like criminalizing people for being homeless. Definitely, and 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 uh, certainly, uh, regulations often have a corporatist effect. To uh, you know, uh, just add. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. usually the. These are the big companies that, that push for these uh, these types of regulations and, and licensing. You know, they use licensing as a way to decrease competition to established players in a particular industry. Uh, there's a libertarian nonprofit group called Institute for Justice, uh, ij.org on the web, uh, which has been terrific at fighting in court to overturn some of these regulations and licensing laws. You know, they've had examples, you know, like... Uh, there were some monks in Tennessee, I think it was, who wanted to sell coffins, you know, but it's actually against the law to sell coffins unless you're, you know, uh, I forget, um, you know, belong to the, the Undertaker's Association or something, you know, <laughs> it's basically just yeah. a wooden box, you know, but, but people are being criminalized for selling these wooden boxes because they even have the right kind of licensing or government approval. And, and what this does, of course, is it, it raises the cost for everybody of, of uh, dying and being buried, and it just becomes a little more economic burden on people and then it costs jobs because people, you know, who might want to make the coffins uh, can't legally do it without jumping through a whole bunch of hoops. So therefore they, they don't have those jobs and the economy is worse as a result because of it. So we all suffer. You know, there's a million examples of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Definitely. Because to do it. People superficially uh, buying into these regulation ideas that sound uh, good on the surface and not really thinking about what they mean and what their consequences will be. Mm-hmm. And like you said, uh, you know, health departments rot with fraud, um, you know, and that's the only people's mode of choice. If there would actually be some competition and an allowance for uh, uh, independent third-party uh, rating agencies to even exist, there might there might be a, a more uh, you know openness and transparency and and uh, you know better faring out of who's um, who who you know who uh, you know who really. Um, is hiding something, especially when they're bribing a, a health inspector. Yeah, yeah, because again, the power corrupts, and you know that that process isn't really transparent. You know, when uh, when it's a voluntary sector organization, they uh, have to be more worried about their reputation because the, their reputation is their business, and if they don't have a, a good reputation, that people found out, for example, that people at Yelp were were on the take and were. Uh, 
you know, cutting cozy deals with, with businesses, uh, you know, Yelp's uh, business would uh, fall dramatically overnight. You know, people would stop using them to uh, uh, rely on uh, finding out which um, businesses, uh, you know, were, were good and getting favorable reviews by customers and so on. But, you know, if, if there's a scandal in government and it turns out that, uh, you know, there's, there's bribery going on in the, in the health department or inspections aren't being done properly or one thing or another, um, you know, this kind of thing happens all the time. Just mm-hmm. look online and read the newspaper. You can find examples. And, and does their funding go away? No. You know, their funding doesn't go away. The regulations stay in place. They continue on. I mean, oh, there's just a few bad apples or, or whatever, you know, and people are, are still forced to use the same system. They don't suffer any negative uh, consequences. And, and so, uh, you know, they're actually less accountable. Government is less accountable to the people than uh, big corporations are. Mm-hmm. Is, is what it comes down to, even though nominally, you know, in theory, there's democracy. They're more accountable to vote out the officials and so on. Well, look at the look at the rate at which incumbents are voted out of office. You know, this is why people demanded term limits, because they weren't being voted out of office, and they're still not being voted out of office because of the, the cartel and the, the way the media reports the news and everything. And, and so, in practice, there's actually less accountability. It's like you have more success getting a big company to change their policies. If you had an advertising... Uh, not advertising, but a, a you know a campaign to to boycott and educate and so forth. People, you know, if you put the same amount of effort, say a thousand people lobbying uh, General Motors or or uh, Apple or, or whatever the company is, you could have more effect on that company than you could with a thousand people trying to lobby the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Government's less accountable. Definitely, and and like you said earlier, it's. Uh, it's not so much watering down the libertarian message that um, that enables us to win. It's more of just you know, you know the 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 syndrome of of getting yourself on the ballot and then staying at home. You know, uh, you know it's not about changing the message. It's about getting the, out there and working and working. And you know, I, I I've done a lot of just street activism, and I find that you know it's better than it's better than nothing. So so describe your activism uh, uh, in the past election um, in the libertarian races. You know, in the national convention where you uh, might I add you wore some killer drag and truly represented the libertarian spirit all the way on C-SPAN as a, and also, you know, a lot of great new people got on board, like Vice Chair Lee writes, um, and, and any efforts you might have taken part in, in any of the local referendums, like, uh, on the ballot in California to increase individual, individual liberty and equal justice. Sure. Well, yeah, I'm kind of notorious for adjusting uh, uh, outrageously uh, <laughs> at our national conventions, and I, I do that partly to help keep the culture of the Libertarian Party, um, uh, you know, uh, more, more bottom-up and more, uh, you know, civil liberty less friendly, less friendly in a culture way, because historically the, the Libertarian Party has, I think, tended to emphasize a little bit more of the, uh, the economic issues, the issues that appeal to conservatives and people on the right, uh, because there's more former conservatives and Republicans in the party uh, than there are former Democrats and liberals, but it's important for us to really uh, maintain a balance between left and right and to emphasize the civil liberties and so forth, uh, no less than the economic liberties, uh, in part because, you know, as I was saying, the, the people who are young and idealistic tend to be drawn more to the left. Um, in terms of changing the future, that is really, you know, the fight that, that needs to be fought and won. I don't think the... Uh, I think conservatism, to uh, a large extent, is is a dying philosophy. Actually, um, you know, and, and and in terms of things like uh, 
drugs and, and gay marriage and, uh, uh, you know, issues like this, homosexuality, et cetera, prostitution. I think the, the battle is really slowly turning against them as people in the world become more uh, evolved in their thinking and uh, uh, tolerance and so on. Um, you know, I think the real battle will be between, you know, libertarians and, and people on the left. So um, I've, I've tried to, you know, kind of subtly do my part to um, make sure the Libertarian Party is, is uh, culturally friendly to people on the left. And, um, yeah, I, I ran last uh, year for the National uh, Committee, as I mentioned. I'm uh, now an at-large representative on the Libertarian National Committee. Uh, locally, I didn't run for office last year, um, but I, along with others in the Libertarian Party, San Francisco, had a very good year in terms of getting uh, arguments on the ballot. Uh, San Francisco, like California, has a uh, system that's a bit more democratic than some parts of the country where uh, citizens can directly get measures on the ballot. Uh, government can also put these measures on the ballot. That's just going for and that's easier for them to do by far than it is to get independent measures on the ballot. You know, we got that uh, prostitution measure. Uh, decriminalization on the ballot and stuff. And I mentioned you know, we have to get like 13,000 signatures of registered voters in the city, which is quite difficult. I mean, that took you know many, many hours of, uh, of volunteer labor and effort and everything to do that. But uh, you know, it, it is an avenue, and, and then the, the, these uh, uh, measures get listed in the voter handbook along with pro and con arguments. And there's paid arguments you can pay to have your arguments in for against measure, and then there's a Kind of lottery system to see who gets to uh, put free arguments in. Now, the proponents of each measure get to make the argument for the measure, but then uh, the arguments against the different measures are kind of decided by a lottery system where you can file arguments with the Department of Elections, and then if your argument is selected, then you get to be the official opponent in your argument and rebuttal, and everything is listed in there. And the Libertarian Party of San Francisco, uh, you know, had uh, filed a, a a large number of arguments uh, this past year, and uh, we ended up getting four out of the seven opposition slots. Of, of the seven measures that were on the ballot, uh, the LPSF uh, was the official opponent on four of them. Uh, you know, and I, I wrote uh, at least a couple of those arguments, and um, uh, you know, that was great publicity for us because the voter handbook goes out to hundreds of thousands of registered voters. You know, and, and community groups that are having forums on the election and on different measures. Uh, you know, they'll contact the groups that are listed as the official opponents and opponents, and, and invite them to come and uh, debate these issues. You know, if I got to go out and uh, uh, speak at a lot of different community forums against these uh, these measures, you know, that we were opposing, and talk about libertarian ideas and uh, you know expose those ideas to people, and I got. Know, media out of it. You know, I was on on TV. Uh, you know, talking against the city college bond measure they had to you know, raise taxes to support the, the government community college here, and uh, you know, et cetera. So um, yeah, we we had a pretty good year, and unfortunately, it wasn't uh, successful in, in stopping these measures from passing. You know, they all passed at the San Francisco for you in terms of economic liberty. It's a pretty sad situation, but. Uh, I think we were successful to some extent at getting the libertarian message out there and uh, getting some people to uh, perhaps think about the issues in ways that they had before.
Do you think the third-party debates showed the rest of the world, especially you know countries that we occupy, uh, that a large number of Americans stand vehemently opposed uh, to to uh, what we're doing to those countries, uh, especially in regards to drone strikes? Well, again, it's, it's not us doing things to oh, those yeah. countries, and, and we're not occupying the U.S. U.S. government and the U.S. government's uh, employees who, who are, are doing this. So if, if, if you work for the U.S. government, by the way, I would uh, you know, encourage you to either you know, try to work within the system for, for freedom or to speak out against the uh, U.S. government or try to find a more moral uh, occupation in the voluntary sector. But, but anyway, to answer your question, um, a lot of the... Uh, Third party, yeah, and I actually also try to uh, refer to alternative parties yes. uh, rather than third parties, because third party kind of implies that there can only be three, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I think certainly the alternative party debates, uh, you know, the higher profile they had last year with uh, freeandequal.org sponsoring them, and Larry King uh, being the Obama TV host, uh, Governor Gary Johnson, of course, running as libertarian. I think these things did help to increase the profile of um, dissent in the United States around the world, and that this, this will ultimately be important. You know, I, I w- would like to actually get Libertarian parties and other parties to uh, uh, work more at getting uh, international uh, election observers into this country uh, to monitor elections and talk about how elections here are unfair. And uh, I know complaints with international uh, groups, you know, the UN and human rights groups and so forth, about uh, American uh, government oppression and, and lack of democracy in this country. Um, I don't know the extent, you know, not really living overseas and, and having too much access to uh, reading foreign media on a regular basis, to watching the news in these countries. I don't know to what extent the alternative parties, uh, you know, in the United States were, were really visible. Uh, I suspect they were more visible uh you know, than here, at least relative to the extent to which people overseas are paying attention to U.S. elections, because I think that um, a lot of people in other countries are more used to the idea of there being multiple parties and don't understand the degree to which the two cartel parties really dominate things here in the United States. So when they hear about the Libertarian Party or the Green Party in other countries, um, they often, I think, take those parties more seriously then a lot of Americans have kind of been led to take them here. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, people overseas who want the United States to be um, a more pro-freedom country that isn't bombing people in other countries uh, so much, isn't trying to, uh, you know, oppress people in, in various ways around the world, um, uh, you know, that they can uh, play a valuable role in that in terms of lending their voices uh, talking about the problems uh, with the electoral system in the United States and supporting alternative parties like the Libertarian Party. We really are a worldwide movement. There's actually Libertarian parties in a number of different countries. And, and uh, yeah, it's ultimately, again, like I said, a battle between the, the people of the world and the governments of the world, you could say, and uh, where we can realize that, that our, our allies are people in other countries fighting their battles against the governments that are pressing them and stand together, uh, uh, you know, united we stand, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And and like you said, you know, the, the difference between we the people and, and them the government that, you know, this kind of shows that not everybody supports, you know, what our government is doing rather than, you know, if 
it wasn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, you ask And you know, separates the people, the people's actions from the government's actions, and also shows that there's not there's not only just you know the, the separation, but the uh, opposition by the people that they're not all complacent and, and not caring or you know uh, part of it you know making those policies happen so i think it was a very very cool thing uh, what is the libertarian party doing in, in 2014 especially in california uh, what are plans for running candidates for governor senate congress and local races in the face of the of this dreadful top two system yeah, I was just going to mention the top two law, but you, you beat me to it. That's, mm-hmm. that's certainly one of the things that I uh, was paying attention to in California as the Libertarian Party because they passed this uh, law uh, that says that only the uh, top two vote-getting candidates in each race get to be on the general election ballot, uh, You know, which means that uh, usually Republican and Democrat and all the alternative parties are shut out and the voters don't get a chance to vote for them. Uh, you know, in some places, like in San Francisco, top two means that there's probably going to be two Democrats on the ballot. You know, none of the more conservative areas I mean only two Republicans. You know, so even the Democrats and Republicans, uh, you know, will get shut out in, in some cases and not have a chance to vote for anybody outside of one party. Um, you know, so it's, it's really a horrible law, and it really just further entrenches the power of incumbents in the establishment. Mm-hmm. Voters were, were misled into uh, passing it because the uh, 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 ballot description, uh, the way that the measure was described on the ballot, didn't accurately describe it. They they weren't uh, allowed. People were not shown uh, told that the uh, uh, law would have these effects. And when they were told this in uh, Arizona last year. Uh, when they tried to pass a similar measure, but it had a better worded ballot description, the people voted it down big time and it lost. Mm-hmm. So I think now the struggle will be to get this the bad law thrown out in California. Uh, I don't know if the legislature is going to do it, though. The legislature is dominated by Democrats and uh, the balance of members of Republicans. Now, there's no alternative party re- representation in the California legislature. So, uh, you know, trying to get them to fix it might. Uh, the NFL struggle, you know, it might take another ballot measure, but you know, that takes millions of dollars to get a measure on the ballot. So it's such a big state, you have to get so many signatures. So, you know, it's going to be a, a struggle. Um, you know, in the meantime, uh, you have to, uh, you know, keep educating people about how, you know, you're not wasting your vote by voting an alternative party. You're wasting your vote by voting for the establishment that's not going to change anything, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Exactly. Um, you know, and of course, all the other other ways of activism that we have to spread the freedom message. Uh, is the is the LP going to do, do a candidate for governor or, or senate this go around? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'll nominate candidates for governor and senate, but you know, again, until we get this law thrown out, they you, you might not have a chance to vote for them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, unless you're a libertarian voting in the primary election, you know, you might not see them on your, your ballot, unfortunately, uh, unless we get this law thrown out. So, mm-hmm. um, write letters to the editor. You know, tell your friends, uh, complain to your representatives, uh, say that you want to get rid of the top two law. You know, you want real democracy. It's, it's outrageous that, you know, it's bad choice between Tweedledum and Tweedledee and they keep forcing this on us. And as a result, you know, you see increasing government power and corruption and everything else you see. I mean, you've got cities like uh, 
bell in California, this whole scandal where the, basically the government uh, people running it were just, uh, uh, you know, giving themselves outrageous, you know, high six-figure salaries uh, in a very poor community. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's uh, just one of the more visible examples of, of I think, what's going on across the board that uh, people in government really are running the system to their own advantage. You know, it's, it's less about Republicans versus Democrats, more about people in government riding the gravy train at the expense of people outside government, increasing their own money, increasing their own power. Yeah, I, I had a, I had two Republicans to choose from in my uh, state assembly district, so I'm looking forward definitely to the to the uh, Libertarian Party of California convention right across right in San Clemente across from City Hall, and and my choice was between two Republicans, uh, one uh, Michelle Bachman type a religious crazy lady, and the other guy. I, vote, I had to vote for the other guy, so and he won, so. I might have to, you know, say what's yeah. up with our top two system. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I'd also, <laughs> I'd almost in that situation be worth voting for the crazy lady just shaking the world. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I, I encourage everybody to uh, come to the Libertarian Party convention. Uh, you don't have to be a Libertarian to come to the convention, uh, although I encourage everyone to register Libertarian, and you can still vote however you want, even if you register with the party, but... Registering Libertarian helps increase our numbers and give us more uh, clout and visibility. So if you want to see more freedom in the system, you know, it's a good idea to register Libertarian. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can also, uh, you know, on the flip side, you can stay registered as a Democrat or Republican or decline to state or whatever and uh, join the Libertarian Party as a, as a voting or dues-paying member and uh, support us that way. Um, but you don't even have to do either of those things to come to the convention and check out some of the uh, speakers and stuff that we're going to have. It's uh, April 5th through 7th at the Hyatt Hotel in Sacramento, um, as Alex was mentioning, right across from the state capitol. Uh, for more information about that and to sign up, you can go to lpc.org, uh, the Training Prairie of California website, lpc.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's... Um, be a fun event. Hopefully, we'll get some better uh, leadership uh, here at the state level within the party too. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, you know our internal politics is a whole other thing. But um, yeah, you know if, if uh, people don't uh, start to you know doing something differently and uh, behaving differently as voters than they have, then it's going to be difficult to get change. So everybody can do their part individually. Mm-hmm. And uh, serving on a jury, as Derek mentioned, is another uh, thing that you can really do in your life. Uh, you know, if you get called for jury duty, a lot of people try to get out of it, and it's easy to get out of. You know, if you want to get out of it, I mean, you can just ignore the summons, and nothing's going to happen to you. You know, I'm not going to lie to you, but I urge people. You know, if you care about freedom, don't ignore the summons. If you, if at all possible, if you can economically manage it, go. You know, and try to get on that jury. You know, they'll try to screen you off if you have pro-freedom ideas. You know, this old wired ear process, you know, they'll, for example, if it's a case where there might be the death penalty, they'll uh, try to disqualify anybody that doesn't believe in the death penalty. They'll specifically ask you that. And if you say, no, I don't believe in the death penalty, okay, you're off the jury. You know, uh, this is not the way it was supposed to work, you know. And, and as a result of people uh, getting screened off juries for having pro-freedom opinions, you have lots of innocent people getting thrown in jail. Uh, you know, all it takes is one person on a jury to vote not guilty. And they can't punish you for that. They can't stop you from doing that. As long as you 
just claim that the evidence wasn't convincing enough, you think there was a reasonable doubt, uh, there's really very little they can do to stop you from uh, preventing somebody from being wrongly sent to jail. So by serving on a jury, you could be preventing real injustice and saving somebody's, uh, you know, going to jail and, and having years of their lives taken from them and their families broken up and destroyed. Of course, the cost of taxpayers about $40,000 a year or more to keep a person in jail for a year in California. Um, so you can really strike a dramatic blow with one single person by getting on a jury and voting your conscience. And um, I think it's perfectly moral to, to lie in that situation and to uh, you know, say whatever you think uh, the judge wants to hear in order to get on that jury to do justice, because this is the way the system is rigged, it's not justice, because it's supposed to be a random jury of the peers, not, not a, a group censored by these lawyers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, don't, don't feel any moral compunctions about saying whatever you need to say to get on that jury and then voting. Uh, you know, your conscience, and if somebody's being prosecuted for something that shouldn't be a crime, or they're being prosecuted in a way that's unfair, then just vote not guilty and stick to your guns and say, hey, I didn't find the prosecutor's evidence convincing, and you can do a real service that way, probably more than all the votes that you'll cast in your lifetime, you can manage to get out of the jury and uh, stop an injustice. Definitely, and I would recommend that everybody Google jury nullification. For those just joining, I'm speaking with Starchild. He's a liberty activist. Um, so what, do you, what do you think about the heightening of consciousness that will make us realize that, for, for instance, we shouldn't really be uh, killing our, our fellow, fellow human beings in ways that are not self-defense and then also awaken us to, re- to realize what causes tyranny, how history repeats itself, and thus to be eternally vigilant to the threat to liberty. Uh, what's your take on, on, on you know, this growing movement uh, you know, towards that direction? Yeah, well, you, you mentioned jury nullification, and, and thank you for that. There, there's a lot of hidden knowledge out there. Uh, you could say that, uh, fortunately now, is, is accessible to everybody on the Internet, you know, at least in the United States where the Internet is still relatively uncensored. It's, it's pretty easy to, to get this uh, knowledge if you start going to libertarian websites and pro-freedom websites and, and reading about some of this stuff, you can really get an education in, into what's going on and how government maintains control of the expense of the people. And um, there's a lot of ways to, uh, you know, find out about this stuff and to get involved and make a difference. Um, you know, really too many to, to go into, but, uh, um, you know, just... Uh, Going on to reader forums on comment sites, you can uh, you can not only learn a lot, but you can weigh in and, and uh, you know contribute to the public dialogue there. Uh, you know, argue with people that are arguing for more government power and explain to them why this is actually going to hurt, not help. You know, some of them are dogmatic and you're not going to change their minds, but other people are open to uh, reason. And sometimes it's not the people that you're arguing with directly, but the people that are just uh, in the background reading the stuff that you'll you reach and you make a difference and maybe get them to think about a situation a little bit differently than they were thinking about it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the nullification thing, by the way, uh, FIJA.org, the Fully Informed Jury Association, FIJA.org, is, uh, is a good place to learn about that issue. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And um, uh, do you have any final words uh, for the uh, to close it off? And, and uh, uh, do you have anywhere people can find you online, like where if you, do you blog or anything like that? 
Um, well, I, I comment on all different kinds of sites. I write articles occasionally. Um, if you do a web search uh, for the term star child, just one word, and libertarian, you'll find a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I, I don't encourage you to use Google, by the way. Um, I think large companies that get too much market share, uh, you know, and, and have, of course, all their records and everything accessible to government are somewhat uh, of a threat, even though I think government is more of a threat than corporations to freedom. But, uh, you know, uh, startpage.com, all one word, startpage, uh, is a good search engine because they uh, they don't put cookies on your computer or try to track your searches. They build themselves as the most uh, private search engine. Uh, use Google technology so you'll be getting similar results, but they won't be storing and tracking your information. So, uh, yeah, um, I would, uh, just in closing, I guess, say that, uh, you know, this is an exciting time to be alive. It's certainly a dangerous time. There's a lot of uh, growing problems, but I think people are also really starting to wake up, and uh, libertarianism really is catching hold, not just in the United States, but around the world. It's a growing movement, and uh, a lot of young people, as we saw in the Ron Paul campaign last year, are uh, really becoming more pro-freedom, and, and the younger generation in the United States, uh, mainstream commentators are recognizing this. It's increasingly a libertarian-leaning uh, generation. So this is really um, good news and, and reason for optimism and hope for the future. Um, please uh, join the Libertarian Party, or at least check us out. Uh, LP.org is the national website. Um, you know, you can also certainly read about libertarianism online on any number of different places. Um, anybody wants to contact me, I'll go ahead and put my email address out there. It's uh, sfdreamer, S-F-D-R-E-A-M-E-R, at earthlink.net. And uh, you can also contact me through lp.org on the leadership page of the Libertarian Party's uh, website. And thanks so much, Alex, for having me on and uh, you know doing the work that you're doing through this radio show to spread the freedom message. Awesome. Thank you very much, and thanks again for stopping by the program. I've been speaking with Star Child. Uh, awesome having you on again. Uh, you know, uh, Have a good day, and we'll talk to you later. Okay. Have a good one. And that was uh, Starchild, libertarian activist and bisexual erotic services provider. And um, before I close in the show, I want to deliver a few uh, news headlines that I did not get to yet. There's work by activists to stop the Terminator before it happens. Uh, drones are, are merely a precursor to robotic warfare. Activists are standing up to the UK government's investment into actual robots and autonomous weapons, which should be available in the next decade. And I don't know about you, I'm not much of a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I shouldn't, I certainly wouldn't be a fan of a robot, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in a fascist world. Uh, torture censorship at Guantanamo uh, trials are, are, are being challenged. Uh, the ACLU is seeking to reverse the judge's order to keep the testimony of alleged 9-11 attackers defense, which includes their experience at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, the government claims... Uh, that the info is classified, but for what reasons? Because we might be disgusted at that treatment, no matter how evil those prisoners were. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm a firm believer in transparency, no matter what. Um, White House finally asks the Supreme Court to strike down DOMA. Before the Obama administration said they were not going to pursue a repeal of DOMA, even in even in his second term, with the mandate that he has from that. But now they are at least urging the courts to do so. 
However, you know, this may be another hot air promise as they as they may, you know, already know the makeup of the Supreme Court um, and they most likely will not be pro LGBT. Uh, Montana, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Idaho, Utah, Michigan, Virginia, North and South Carolina, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama and Florida all have some form of law against gay sex, although unenforceable thanks to Lawrence v. Texas. Uh, so I'm hoping they have another Lawrence v. Texas ruling. Um, but I would much rather Obama pursue that in Congress to repeal Don't Ask or he and he's so, uh, you know, adept on executive orders. Why not that? Bitcoins are trading at $31. Uh, this digital currency is not used by central banks, so it does not have the stains of blood, guns or oil uh, and the war machine that essentially backs our dollar. Its value is more protected. Um, Due to that, although it does fluctuate, part of the uptick may not be that Bitcoins are worth more, but that the dollar is worth less and less every day. And scientists created a genetically modified fetus. Scientists have created what is believed to be the first genetically modified human embryo. A team from Cornell University in New York produced the GM embryo to study how early cells and diseases develop. It was destroyed after five days. The British regulator... Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. Wow, that's crazy that they even have that kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, bureaucracy for, for studying embryology. That's crazy. Uh, but they warned uh, that such controversial experiments cause large ethical and public interest issues. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Scary. Um, so Julian Assange in international news is allowed to pursue an Australian Senate run. Assange is planning to run for the Senate in Victoria, Australia, under the newly formed WikiLeaks party. His nomination papers will be allowed to be submitted, and I will in advance endorse him. If you live in Australia, vote Assange. Um, Palestinians end hunger strike a few days after the mysterious death of a prisoner. Arafat Jaradat recently died in, in an Israeli jail under disputed circumstances. Initial autopsy reports show signs of death caused by torture by Israeli government interrogators. Hunger strikes took place among fellow prisoners immediately after his death. Supporters took to the streets to protest the way prisoners are treated by the Israeli military and prison forces. And, um, you know, to separate, you know, people from their aggressive secretive governments, um, I want to talk about a bit about, you know, Israeli people. Um, just like we should separate, you know, everybody from imperialistic government's actions because uh, not everybody will support it. And generally, in those types of countries, you have a two-party duopoly where people who actually genuinely want to, you know, stop wrongdoings can't uh, legitimately because the money power uh, buys the elections. But uh, um, Israeli scientists have been uh, really doing a lot to study medical cannabis. Um, extensive independent research on the medicinal effects of cannabis by Israeli scientists got one got them an award at the recent Americans for Safe Access National Unity Conference. Over the weekend, uh, of course, you know, that pertaining to research on CBD um, and in other international news, Syrian opposition group ceases peace talks. The U.S. government wants Iran to be open, but is OK with supporting the Syrian rebellion who's taking silence. And in other international news, White House maybe to hand over the Benghazi papers to possibly speed up the nomination of John Brennan. But what's going to be the difference when John Brennan is just going to carry on with the same policies that caused the blowback of the Benghazi attack in the first place? And in other news, 
didn't get to this, but finally got to hear Ron Jeremy okayed to have sex after a near-death incident. He survived after a near-fatal heart aneurysm. Weather in San Marcos, where KKSM broadcasts out of, is 54 degrees, and traffic looks to be pretty clear. Let's check problem areas. Uh, 805 northbound at Governor Drive, uh, 50 mile per hour slowdown. 5 northbound at 76, 48 miles per hour slowdown. And uh, hope you all uh, continue to listen to KKSM. Um, um, thank you all for tuning in tonight. Uh, you know, I think it's important to vote alternative um, uh, going forward because we know really that we're not getting any change no matter who gets elected. Surely at the local level, you can get some people like Ron Paul, of course, elected to Congress, Justin Amash elected to Congress. But if you can't get nominated, like with a scripted delegate count at the GOP convention, can't actually get nominated, what's the point? And if they're actually going to do it on purpose, like scripting the count, like somebody two weeks earlier wrote a script for John Boehner to read on who's going to beat how many delegates there were. That's obviously the most corrupt thing ever. Um, how, how, how do you get around that? You can't especially with the corruption. Um, it, I think it is time to just start flocking away from these two parties. Libertarian re voter registration skyrocketed in the last six months leading up to the election. Independents are the most, the people are not registering, people are registering decline to state in their voter registration forms. So I think it's a very good movement. I also want to recommend a great um, article about a journalist who was killed by the Sri Lankan government for exposing their... Uh, uh, what the wrongdoings that they have been doing. Uh, Lasantha Wickramatunga um, was assassinated on his way to work by two gunmen riding motorcycles. So I, I would love for all of you to search for this article, thenewyorker.com. It's called Letter from the Grave, posted by Steve Cole. Uh, read it. You know, the reason I do this is, is like what he did. It's a call of conscience. I am seeking to uh, really talk about things like drone strikes, with the, which the media is not doing. It is a matter of conscience. It is a matter of innovation. It is a matter of truth and not uh, special interests. And um, I know Gary Johnson said that a good way to describe libertarianism is gun rights and gay rights. I'm going to go ahead and uh, take that uh, a step further. It's Ron Paul and RuPaul. And this, uh, this, these last two songs are Main Event by RuPaul. And then after that, Molen Lobby, Come and Take It by Sons of Liberty. Uh, and uh, be sure to check out the show on iTunes. Search for Free Thought and look for Free Thought AAC. You could download the podcast tomorrow. My guest was Starchild, libertarian activist and bisexual erotic services provider. In the first hour, I had Brad, the CHO, chief hemp officer of Hippie Butter Hemp Seed Products. Here we go. KKSM, the Radio Revolution. Next week, I have Peter McWilliams, famous author, and Joe Grumbine, jail medical cannabis provider. Freethoughtmedia.org. See you guys next week. Take care.
KKSM Oceanside, AM 1320, The Radio Revolution. KKSM Oceanside, in your car at AM 1320, on your TV at Cox Cable 957, or streaming online at palomarcollegeradio.com, or download the Ustream app for your smartphone. KKSM, the radio revolution.